This is the, this is the first. Uh, we have to thank Ken for all his work to make the space gathering happen. Thank you, Ken. You did great work. Oh, thank you. Great pleasure. Great pleasure. Uh, sorry for a, a little bit delay. Uh, there are two reasons. One is that we are trying to get more people uh, join uh, before we start. The second reason is I was trying to set up a, a second camera so people can see the uh, speaker earlier. Uh, but anyway, sorry for the delay, but I'll be very quick. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today for the AIW Los Angeles Las Vegas section. Uh, the very special meeting, uh, space architecture gathering uh with uh, uh space airway space architecture technical committee and uh, some uh invited guests from non-SATC uh members um we have uh, a, a, a brilliant lineup of distinguished speakers uh, they are the leaders in the industry for uh, space architecture this is a, a very exciting topic and as you know starship is going to uh the ship 24 is going to uh, attempt to launch it uh, did you hear that did you hear that starship yeah 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 and also very good very good and uh we also have the uh uh may 11 but we also give the excellent award to lg rocketdyne uh for the uh artemis one so things are keep moving and uh you know and also Gorman and some other company involved in artemis two so things are moving so this art space architecture is getting getting you know more and more closer for uh, uh, reality of course, the other other launch vehicles are activity as well. Uh, just a brief kind of logistic. First of all, there are coffee, you know, coffee cups and a, a hot coffee uh, in the kitchen there. Uh, there's also a kettle for wa hot water if you want the tea. Uh, there are bottles of water there, and the, the restroom is outside. Uh, but you might need to wave hand to the librarian uh, because the door is actually locked. They don't want anybody to use it. But if you wave hand to them, they open it for you. Um, and the other thing is because uh, we have speaker lined up, uh, uh, you know, different uh, part of the world, so we don't have a lunch break. Uh, so, but you're you're welcome to walk outside to uh, grab your lunch. There is a corner burger just right across three thirty second to one minute walk. Uh, you're welcome to bring it and back here to come to enjoy the food. Around lunch time, there might be a line, but may not. Uh, so uh, yeah, you can give it a try. If you want other places, you can call in ahead, ahead and uh, call for delivery. Uh, so that's the basic logistics. Um, so basically today we have three sessions and the first two sessions mostly are uh, by the members of SATC, uh, Space Architecture Technical Committee members. Today we, um, the Grand uh, uh, Master Moderator is none other than uh, Professor Madhu Sankabenu. Uh, we have two co-chairs. One is uh, uh, Sandra. Uh, the other is uh, Alma. Uh, Sandra is um, is actually the current chair of the Space Architecture Technical Committee. Uh, so I will introduce uh, them three. But I think it's better for them to kind of say a few more about uh, themselves as well. Uh, I just one more words about AIWA because uh, this event is it is hosted by AIWA, and we are the Los Angeles Aspirant Section. Uh, uh, local chapter, uh, but we have the most vibrant activity and uh, aerospace activity in this area uh, that we welcome uh, members, non-members, and we got a lot of advantage uh, being a member. And uh, for example, if you join a member, you, you can join the technical committee like SATC or other technical committee. So uh, our sector have been doing our best to uh, bring the AWA activity to uh, local and uh, 
domestic and international members. And uh, we actually recruited many members, you know, from France. There were actually 30 students from France and other India, other places. Uh, they, they are just not going to be affiliated with our section because they come locally uh, with zip code, but we are more than ha uh, happy to help the overall AWA and the aerospace community. Um, so we have an interesting event coming up. So if you look up uh, AWA.org, that's our national, uh, then you can, uh, Sanjay will tell you about this uh, uh, spacearchitecture.org, architecture uh, SATC website. Um, uh, and uh, so once in a while, we connect to our Airtable's technical committee to make sure people know what Airtable has been doing. Uh, Airtable publish and uh, also uh, provide uh, great member services. And uh, uh, but our event and speaker and member non-members are welcome. Uh, is, uh, uh, one more thing is uh, our local chapter website is www.aiwa-lalv.org. Uh, so I'm the section chair, and we have wonderful volunteer Mike Nyberg on the back uh, helping us. And we have Jeremy, Mr. Jeremy Robert from FAA. Uh, he is uh, going to be our um, uh, career and workforce development chair starting uh, January, I mean, June 1st, uh, uh, pending the election result. Uh, so welcome, everybody. So. Um, so now, sorry, I, I kind of did a little bit, but uh, we will catch up. We can extend a little bit. Uh, don't worry. Uh, so um, with this, I first introduced the, uh, because Sandra and Alma has been putting a lot of time, of course, Margaret as well. Uh, but since we put the title as SATC with Airtable for Sandra. So first I will uh, introduce Sandra as the chair of the uh, SATC. Then I will I'll introduce uh, Mario uh, as a grandmaster uh, moderator for the whole day. And uh, Sandra is also the moderator for the panel for uh, for, for, the for the session one and the panel. And uh, Alma is uh, going to, I mean, it depends on, you know, Amadou might have some uh, a slight adjustment. Uh, so we'll see. So uh, Sandra is uh, a professor uh, in, uh, you know, in Europe. So uh, I don't want to repeat the same file that uh, you can see all online. Uh, so Sandra, maybe do, do you want to say a few words about yourself and SATC? Um, yes, hello, welcome. I'm very happy that we have succeeded in this grant, Space Architecture Gathering, and I see this really as the first of many others to follow. Um, I am the current chair of the Space Architecture Technical Committee, thank you for your introduction. And besides that, my home base is at the TU Wien, where I teach architecture, space architecture, and I also have a company where we deal with some research projects. But you will see a bit more in the other presentations. Thank you all for coming. And good to see we have such a mixed international group. Great. Okay, excellent. Uh, so how about Madhu? And uh, Madhu is our distinguished professor uh, you will see uh, he's also the director of wonderful program there. Uh, he actually on both sides, the aerospace and also the architecture. Uh, it's just amazing. And uh, his knowledge and uh, uh, effort and uh, skill is just amazing. And uh, we have been doing several um, uh, space tourism, right? Uh, space right. architecture, space philosophy event, all led by Madhu. Uh, Madhu is great help for AWA. It's wonderful. Uh, it, it is, uh, uh, so we are counting on your 
long-term uh, support, and we'll support you as well. Uh, so, Matu, do you want to say a few words about yourself? Oh, well, uh, or maybe, can I? Oh, good. We still need to introduce. Okay. Oh, there are lots of people to, for introduction, but uh, uh, first of all, thank you all for coming. And uh, I want to let you know that this show is being run by Sandra and Alma. And I also want you to know, in architecture or in any other person, posters matter. And for the first time, uh, I, I will be asking uh, uh, privately of Ken, uh, but I think we have managed to gather a good audience. Uh, uh, look at the numbers and you'll see, we're approaching 100 people on uh, online, Ken. It's a little less than 1,000, but it, you know, that's how it works. <laughs> uh, but uh, I want to welcome you all. And uh, space architecture is a special arena. And uh, uh, I'm glad uh, that uh, your response is so, so, so good. And now I would like Alma to say something before we start the program. Alma. Hi, hello, everyone. I hope you can hear me. Um, my name is Alma Kugic. I come from Pula, Croatia, and I'm a student of architecture at uh, University of Technology in Vienna. Um, I'm currently writing my master's thesis, and I'm also one of the uh, co-organizers of this event. And I just want to say that it was a pleasure organizing it, and I am really happy uh, to see you all in such big numbers. Thank you. Thank you. Are we ready for the first set of slides, Ken? I, I can tell you that our schedule is already blown, but that's okay. Um, but, you know, uh, I think we are on schedule for, do we have a lineup, Ken? Actually, I Not really. we don't need that. Yeah, we have a, a group of, of people for session one. Okay. Know about, uh, if you want to follow the order. In, in, general, in general, the way is that each of you have 10 minutes uh, the slide or talk time followed by five minutes of questions and some of them may appear in the chat right Ken yes the questions good <coughs> and uh, once that is done we move on to session two and session three so enjoy the day with us uh, here in uh, uh, London I think our first speaker is uh, Melody Okay, so it's Melody, right? Okay. Melody, are you on? Yes, I'm here. Oh, great. Melody keeps a very busy schedule, <laughs> flying around <laughs> all over the place, and works for the pioneering company called Icon. I think all of you may have heard about it. And they're doing some spectacular work in North America, not just here, but in Mexico and other places. And Sandra is leading the effort as part of the architect architecture group for ICON. Uh, I'm so sorry, Madhu. I have to interrupt you right at the beginning because I have to do the short introduction to the committee first. Uh, of course, yes, please. Um, I know that probably, I'm not sure if Mark is already here. Mark would have much more to say about it because we had some discussions, but let me start to, can you see my slides? Yes. Uh, uh, yes. Okay. Yes. 
So I, I give you first a first introduction to the Space Architecture Committee, and then I will introduce Melody Yashar as the first speaker. So AIA's vision is to be the voice of the aerospace profession, and they have a tagline, it's shaping the future of aerospace. Um, all right. So this is what we do. Uh, the Space Architecture Technical Committee is, um, one moment, which, which slide do you see? I'm now a bit, um, sorry. Okay, the Space Architecture Technical Committee is the first formal organization of space architects and industrial designers in the world. It is one of 70 technical committees of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, the AIAA. And each technical committee consists of experts in their field. Space architecture is the theory and practice of designing and building inhabited environments in outer space. This is a mission statement for space architecture that was developed at the World Space Congress in Houston um, 21 years ago in 2002 by members of the technical aerospace architecture. Um, the founding charter further defines space architecture more broadly to encompass architectural design of living and working environments in space-related facilities, habitats, and vehicles, and also these environment, environments include space vehicles, stations, habitats, and lunar and planetary bases. But it also includes Earth analogs and closed ecological systems. So this definition is from the Millennium Charter that was drafted by 46 architects, engineers, industrial designers, managers, and researchers in 2002. The entire text of the Millennium Charter is online and you can download it via our website. So it took quite a while. You can see on the left some video shots from this 2002 uh, Space Architecture Symposium. And I give you now a short summary, Mark Hohen, probably later. He can give a more detailed description, also Brent Griffin in the audience, Ken and Scott Howe. Those were the driving forces and they are with us today. And for sure, they can tell you much more about it. At the beginning, the Aerospace Architecture Subcommittee was a subcommittee of uh, the Design Engineering Technical Committee, DETC. And there was a group, Mark Cohen, Constance Adams, Brent Griffin, Scott Howe, uh, Brent Sherwood that had been looking for venues to hold first official technical paper session under auspices of the AIA. So the first technical paper session took place in Orlando in 1999. And then later Mark names it the first serious technical paper session took place at the ISIS, the International Conference on Environmental Systems in Toulouse, France. And there was a lot of communication with many people in between and many phone calls and many meetings. 
until the proposal of the world space for the world space uh, conference was prepared, which finally resulted in the first space architecture system, as well as the first space architecture symposium during the World Space Congress in 2002 in Houston. Here are another few snapshots from this epic event. It was kind of the start of our committee, but still not yet there was no space architecture committee. So in 2007, a proposal for an independent committee was prepared by Scott Howe, Ted Hall, and Brent Sherwood, Constance Adams, and Mark Cohen. And there were also discussions, interestingly, concerning about the name of the new committee. You can see in the text that it's highlighted, no other name can adequately express it. So the goal was to transform the Aerospace Architecture Subcommittee of the Design Engineering Technical Committee to the level of an independent committee. At that moment, there were about 30 members. They prepared a presentation and a document uh, to address the concerns regarding the clarity and focus of the name. And on the left, you see a diagram that was also part of this proposal and that clarifies the relation between the SATC to two other AA technical committees, the System Engineering Technical Committee and the Life Science and System Technical Committee. Finally, the SATC was established as a committee in 2008. Overall, it was a 10-year effort, and now we are a professional association of space architects. Uh, we are very active and we maintain global research. At the moment, the Space Architecture Committee is uh, structured like this. We have a chair and a vice chair. The secretary was uh, implementing and merged with the role of the chair and vice chairs. Um, the, they are elected for a two-year period. We have 50 members that are from all over the world, from the US, from Europe, from Asia and Middle East as well as South Africa. Our, also our members are very uh, multiple. They come from industry, academia, and government. And we also include experts as well as young professionals and students. We, as CTC members, organize space architecture sessions at major technical conferences. This year it is the stand in Las Vegas is the ISPIS in Calgary and it's the ISD in Baku, where we have multiple space architecture sessions. Um, we also have uh, honors and awards. So uh, uh, we also have space architecture symposium in remembrance of our Earth first symposium, where we meet um, for one or two days with also with new interested people to discuss applications of architectural principles to the design of facilities beyond Earth and living and working environments in space and also technical challenges presented by the environment. We have best paper awards in two categories every year. So we have a best paper award for the best professional paper and also the award for best student paper. Uh, 
Um, relatively new, we have initiated the Gordon Woodcock Award. The Gordon Woodcock Award uh, shall be the highest professional achievement of an individual in the field of space architecture. Um, we are very glad that Scott Howe is here today with us because he received the first um, Gordon Woodcock Award in 2020. The award is created in honor of Gordon Woodcock. He was a Boeing engineering manager who had a pioneering understanding of the value of architects in aerospace. I'm also happy that Scott uh, Mark Cohen is with us today because he is the new recipient of the 2020, uh, 2022 award of the uh, Gordon Woodcock Award for Professional Excellence in Space Architecture. Uh, to use the tagline of IIAA, the SDTC is shaping the future of aerospace. All our members are constantly progressing the field of space architecture. Many of our past and present members actively shape the future of space exploration right now. You will hear some of these as examples today. And on the images, you can also only see some examples that because they work at NASA and national space agencies from other countries and also in current space companies. Also, uh, besides bringing relevant people in space industry, our members actively reach out and communicate their research uh, in lectures, for TED Talks, and also publications and books. We have a huge open access database that you may want to note down. It's a, a huge resource of knowledge that is accessible via the web to everyone. And last but not least, we continue to encourage young people and to share knowledge. So many of our members are offering and teaching and accredited programs and courses. This is just a selection of the programs that are offered this year. So you can come to our website to see uh, what's going on. And we invite you to get in contact with us and those that are here and are interested in becoming a member of our SDTC please email me or follow us on our Instagram and Facebook account. Um, we are very happy to welcome you and talk with you further. Thank you very much. Thank, uh, thank you so much, Sandra. Is there, is there, I think there is no question yet. Maybe we have to keep the questions for our joint discussion after session one. It is my pleasure to introduce Melody Yashar as the first speaker. Melody Yashar is a space architect, technologist, and researcher. She is the VP of Building Design and Performance and Icon. The projects are on the media, I think, on, in every country, in every newspaper at the moment. And I'm looking forward to hear much more about your work and what you do at ICON. Welcome, Melody. Okay, you are unmuted at the moment. We can see your presentation. 
Can you hear me now? Perfect. Okay, wonderful. Sorry about that. I'm having some issues with my screen, unfortunately, but I'm going to just get started and hopefully maintain as be as timely as I can be. I have quite a few slides, but um, initially, well, first of all, thank you, Sandra, for the introduction and thank you, Ken, for organizing this wonderful and epic event um, and, and Madhua as well. Initially, I was going to speak about some work that we're doing relative to lunar construction, but this week in particular, the NASA Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog had a press launch and also um, a press day where multiple um, members of, of the press and of media were invited to come into the analog, so I thought this would be a great opportunity to take a look inside what this analog actually is and talk about how it was designed and constructed. And I'll end with a little bit of a, uh, how do we say it, a before and after kind of comparison of what we anticipated the interiors to look like versus what they actually are, which is not intended to be disparaging at all. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's the humbling reality that construction is rather difficult when you're organizing a research program of this sort. So CHAPIA is a uh, research uh, analog that is, has been designed and built at the Johnson Space Center in Hangar 220, which is actually where the HERA analog is. Um, and it's intended to be used and operational for three missions, and they will each be one year long uh, and house four volunteer crew members who will be simulating Mars activities within this structure. Within this structure. It is a 3D printed structure. Uh, the, essentially, ICON and multiple other former competitors of the NASA Centennial Challenge for a 3D printed habitat were provided a request, an RFP to, to demonstrate capabilities to 3D print an analog habitat. ICON was awarded and uh, I actually joined ICON very shortly after that. So the design phase for this project began in October, 2020, it took about I would say six to eight months to design. And then construction began in June, 2021. And I believe ingress for the research experiment is eminent. It should be happening in sometime in the next few months this year. Some of the goals for the, for the analog itself, uh, the intent here, oh, did I lose full screen? Sorry about that. Okay, so, so sorry, some of the goals for the, for the analog, the intent is to evaluate uh, on future long duration missions, what will be an acceptable uh, food resource or food supply uh, for the crew members. Additionally, some research will be happening in crew health, behavioral performance, and just generally evaluating the, uh, the behavioral performance of the crew. And the intent overall is to use that data to, in, in the future, establish and inform some standards and recommendations relative to future long duration missions. Grace Douglas is the principal investigator for CHIPIA and she develops advanced food systems, both for space station as well as multiple other uh, programs. 
So here's a, a rendering of the habitat printed by ICON's Vulcan system. This is a, our terrestrial construction system, which uses a mortar-based cementitious material, um, which in this case we dyed red to be more Mars-like, but the red is only uh, a, a kind of a superficial sort of addition that we made to the material. This is actually the same material that we use to deliver all kinds of projects for, uh, uh, for, for sale in the housing sector, but also for the Department of Defense and all of the other sectors that, that we work in. So the system that was used to print this habitat is, is we refer to as the Vulcan. This is a gantry-based 3D printer that operates on rails. Uh, there is a maximum build volume associated with this printer, but fortunately for us, uh, the build volume worked quite well with the requirements that NASA had for a single story habitat in this case. Um, we also, just to speak a bit about ICON's capabilities, we have a digital design to print workflow, which enables us to take BIM models, typically designed in Revit, and convert those models and translate them into functional and dynamic G-code that can be updated in real time over the course of a, of a 3D print. And then finally, we have a construction front-end construction operating system that uh, our operators use when, when, when printing. And it lets them know when certain interventions need to be made within the print, such as when reinforcement needs to be incorporated or windows and doors and other fenestration and other elements. Uh, finally, we have a workflow that we've developed to uh, specifically introduce documentation for our printed wall. And uh, this is something that is essential for us as we're permitting our structures and working with various jurisdictions to, uh, to build our work in the real world. So here is the footprint of the Chapia analog within building 220, which is a conditioned space. And then over to the left, you'll see Hera, the Hera analog, the human exploration research analog. Uh, the other thing to note is that both mission control as well as engineering support for both analogs are going to be within this building. That's for good reason, right? So that was the first of many constraints which indicated the maximum build size or square footage of the analog itself. Uh, the other constraint we had is that we were given a floor load rating of 500 pounds per square foot meaning the overall structure could not be heavier than 750,000 pounds, which seems like a lot, but when you're working in concrete, that weight adds up very quickly. And there were a number of design iterations that we went through to be sure that we could meet that, uh, that limit. So we were given quite a few requirements uh, for designing the analog. In particular, utility connections were asked to be on the west side. We were asked to provide two exits, uh, washer dryer, various other utilities, cameras covering the entire habitat. Uh, and of course, that it was a single story building. They were, NASA was interested in this in particular because for, for safety reasons. Um, and then we were given a minimum 1500 square feet of living space to design for. The crew quarters, essentially we were told to provide a single bed, space for personal storage and space for a chair and a desk. 
we were asked to provide a monitor within the recreation area, a table for activities and comfortable seating. Within the kitchen area, we were given quite a few requirements. I won't go through everything just for the sake of time. And uh, we were asked to provide two bathrooms with one bathroom located quite close to an EV air EVA area, um, the premise being that over the course of long EVAs, extravehicular activity, uh, activities, that the crew might need to go to the bathroom at some point. So they wanted to study how long they could go before, before um, needing to use the facilities. They were also asked to provide an exercise area within the analog a medical station with a medical pass-through, uh, which could include a two-way fridge to pass biological samples to ground support. Um, I mentioned bathrooms before. And then a robot R, uh, basically flight simulator machine, which would be within inside of an of a enclosed work I would say office space where they would also be able to do teleconferences and video conferences for public relations purposes. And so some of the layout design principles relative to design of the analog, we were interested in separating the private from the public programs. Oh yes, we were working with the Bjarke Ingalls group over the course of the design phase. Uh, and, and of course, we're working collaboratively with the Human Habitability Division, as well as multiple others from NASA to refine the design and make sure that we were meeting all of the requirements in our design phase. But the idea of separating private from public spaces or shared spaces and uh, creating a distinction between work and life programs uh, we're all we're value systems that were very important to us. And we're also interested in providing some degree of multi-purpose or customizability within the design. So our process became, uh, given that we had very limited, uh, a, a very limited footprint to work with, we established the general kind of, uh, let's say square footage requirements per program and realized that we could create a sort of gradient in terms of the experience. Uh, gradient meaning we are moving from uh, left to right in terms of most private to most public areas. So that's essentially how the uh, programming of the interior took place. On the far left of the screen, you'll see four crew quarters, uh, as well as hygiene areas and uh, some growth areas for crops and aeroponic garden will be there. Uh, in the center area, we have a recreation area as well as dining area. And then on the far right, uh, the, work, the work programs, the second toilet fitness area, as well as the medical bay and robot R station. So here's the floor plan itself. And I'll run through some of the uh, drawings that we developed for the habitat before speaking about construction. I'm gonna try to go as quickly as I can. So you'll see the utilities on the west side of the facade as well as the two access points on the east. Uh, you'll notice a very interesting panelized roof system. Uh, I'll talk about that in just a moment, but we were interested in creating and in, in demonstrating an association between the roof panels as well as some fillets and uh, undulations on, on the facade itself. 
and also used it to separate those three spaces, the private sleeping areas, the uh, leisure area, and the work areas. The roof sort of uh, evoked a change in, in program and function. So here's uh, some of, here are some of the sections of the habitat. You'll see it creates this like, that there's some, there's some areas where the ceiling height is lower than others. So in particular in the leisure room, you have a grander experience than you do within the crew quarters, which are more intimate. Uh, here's a quick, uh, what's it called? Time-lapse of construction of the habitat. The thing that's interesting here is that uh, printing of the vertical of the vertical walls, not necessarily the roof panels, happened in about 10 days. And then finish out and construction of the analog took another, I would say, nine to 10 months afterwards. So the printing introduces an overwhelming time benefit when we're constructing, um, when we're creating structures of this sort. You'll notice that the roof panels have pick points on them, and that's because they were lifted and lowered by an overhead crane at uh, the Johnson Space Center. Here you'll see this is our typical three bead wall system. You will notice that uh, the, the lines that are incorporated within the print are actually multiple types of reinforcement that we incorporate when we're, uh, when we're printing our structures. Okay, so now for some construction images. We introduced a topping slab to redistribute the weight of the structure in building 220, we didn't do any, uh, we were not destructive in any way and didn't touch the foundation of the, of the, of the hangar whatsoever. Uh, and you'll notice we also have 3D printed the formwork for the foundation as well, which in our opinion is one of the key strategies to reduce uh, materials use in the future uh, relative to, and, and presents an improvement to cast in place concrete construction methods. Uh, we printed the roof panels outside, such as you he see here. And then uh, once the vertical walls were complete, we lifted and lowered these roof panels using the overhead crane in building 220. So here you'll see the panels going on top of the habitat and the final result. Uh, all of our MEPs and uh, general kind of, yeah, our, all of our MEP services were located uh, underneath a raised access floor, which we provided, and it enabled us to make connections with the west facade of the structure. So you'll see these are the panels. And finally, our scope essentially finished here. Once we were done with electrical, done with the raised access floor, uh, completed all of our utilities and our walkthrough for the habitat. And we had functionally, functionally no, um, let's say, say or involvement relative to outfitting and furnishing the habitat itself. We made many, many recommendations for how uh, the two could work together to provide a more integrated result. But uh, I, th I think it's it was just an interesting experience to see how exactly the habitat requirements were reinterpreted uh, for the sake of outfitting and furnishing. Okay, so I'll walk through some photographs of the actual habitat itself. This is an axonometric showing uh, the habitat in addition to an airlock node located shortly outside of it, as well as a sandbox, which has been provided for the sake of doing EVA simulations on Mars. Uh, I'll mention really quickly, there's a paper that was presented in September at IAC where I discussed some of the regulatory implications of designing 
a habitat which does not necessarily need a certificate of occupancy from the city of Houston, but which was signed off by the fire marshal at Johnson Space Center and what exactly that means for standards and uh, and uh, let's say requirements for habitat design in the future, but also for analogs too. It's an interesting thing and I, I would love to dive into it at a later point. So, okay, this is a... Forgive uh, the, uh, the loud music in the background, but uh, this is a fly-through of the habitat, which was provided by NASA very briefly. And I, what I'd like to do is just show some photographs that were released this week in particular. So here you'll see the finished sandbox, which includes an essentially an inflatable to show uh, convey like Mars-like surroundings. The idea is that the crew members, when they do EVAs, will likely be wearing uh, VR and AR goggles to further simulate activities that they'll be doing. There's also uh, some exercise equipment outside that should be simulating partial gravi gravity. Um, and they also are going to be doing some work uh, creating regolith-based bricks, which is, which is really interesting to me. This is a view of the airlock node and then uh, a poster that's <laughs> inside of the analog for orientation's sake. Uh, here's a picture of the food crop and growth areas. And I'll, I'll do a little bit of a before and after here, again, only to note how humbling it is uh, when you have a grand design vision for interior space and programming, uh, which may not necessarily align, let's say, with um, the overall intent and also scope and budget and timeline of multiple uh, researchers and program directors who are who are hoping to uh, satisfy the needs of this of this program. So in any event, here was our idea for the recreation uh, area of the analog, and here's another idea. And then we ended up with with this and some lazy boys, which I think is just a funny reality of uh, of, of working with with this particular group. Uh, here's another view of uh, the working area. This was our vision for the medical bay. And here's a view of the interior. Here's our view of or our vision for the working area. And then another vision of the working area. Granted, we did not have full requirements for every element that would be provided on the inside or exactly how the furnishings should go. And I, I mean, maybe it is a lot to expect that everybody would be paying for Herman Miller within analog research programs. But in any event, this was the final result. And uh, the kitchen area, we actually did uh, provide the millwork here. So we were able to introduce some degree of permanence for the kitchen area. And uh, the crew quarters, this was our vision for the crew quarters. They're actually quite small, I, I should say. And uh, this is the final result. And I believe I will skip this video for the sake of time, but thank you everybody. Thank you very much, Melody. It was a super interesting and very honest talk. Thank you also for this one. 
Um, I think we can have two or three questions. Do you agree, Ken and Alma and uh, Madhu? Because there was one question in the chat from Esther, why not use additives to lighten the concrete? Or Esther, can you ask a question yourself? Scott has a question, uh, Sandra, when, when you're ready. Okay, maybe she cannot ask it directly. The question is, why not use additives uh, to lighten the concrete if the weight requirements made it difficult to design, which I think is a very smart question. Yeah. Um, let's, how, how do I say it? I think that there are multiple approaches that we can take relative to material engineering for 3D printing. In particular, our system, um, rheologically, there's a tricky balance between uh, establishing a flowable material that can basically get from our material handling system, the mixer down the hose and uh, to the nozzle, while also maintaining enough viscosity so that you have structural strength and, and stability from one layer to the next. Uh, the thing about concrete in particular is that you're able to, well, first of all, there's lots of regulatory issues having to do with materials which may not have as much testing or data associated with them. In our case, this was not an opportunity for us to investigate an alternate material. So we ended up with our terrestrial cementitious solution that we have uh, destructive testing for, as well as data, as well as a uh, yeah, general kind of structural guidelines that we could follow. So it was both a, a materials handling challenge as well as one that uh, necessitate that 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 demanded that we uh, revert to established structural principles relative to our material and structural design. Thank you very much, Melody. Uh, we give the mic to the on-site location, Scott. Yeah, hi, Melody. Um, awesome work. That's uh, very exciting. Um, one question that I had is, uh, I recall the, the work that you did uh, for the uh, 3D printing uh, competition that was earlier. And uh, in that, uh, you were attempting to do a kind of a pressure vessel with the uh, 3D printing. Uh, why did uh, you or an icon choose to do a kind of a rectangular design here rather than try to simulate a pressure vessel? I love that question. That's it, and it really gets to the heart of the matter with relative to this project, which is that we were asked to provide a, or, or at least demonstrate capabilities to 3D print an analog habitat. And we were, were specifically asked not to address um, things like how we would introduce, how, how we would mitigate some of the risks of being in a true Martian environment. And so that was an interesting trade that we were asked to make. So we, we weren't asked to think about a pressurized uh, interior. We weren't asked to think about radiation shielding as a design driver for the analog. Because the fact of the matter is that um, building 220 is a conditioned space. And the 
And the overall, I would say, uh, objective of the analog is largely to study human health and behavioral performance, not so much to introduce a design solution that could function in a Mars-like environment. And I know that's a missed opportunity because like, it's only so often that we have a chance to create, uh, I mean, this, this structure is like, a, costs cost a lot of money. We, there's only so often we have an opportunity to create projects that are this grand in scope and that are going to have such a applicable research program to future missions. But, you know, in the end of the day, everybody wanted us to maximize the footprint, not introduce rounded corners because they're very difficult to program and outfit. Uh, and, and the constraints led to a fairly conventional rectangle, which felt like the most efficient solution given the constraints of the project. Thank you, Melody. Sandra has clearly indicated that uh, we should move along and we could, we could have more discussion later, right, Sandra? Yeah, I think I think this is the only thing we can do because we have already so many questions. I will uh, copy them and we will answer them. Either anyone from us or Melody can answer them in the chat. And if not, we can keep them for the end of the session. Uh, let's go to our next speaker, Brand, Brand Griffin. Thank you, Melody for the great presentation as always. Thank you. And now we have another wonderful talk, Rules of Sun, Brent Griffin. Um, Brent Griffin is a program, is that program manager of the single person spacecraft for Genesis. Um, but he is also one of the most smartest engineers in space architecture that I have got to know. In addition, he is the wonderful uh, drawer, creator, illustrator, and I'm very much looking to what he has to say about rules of thumb because he has um, experience with lots of past relevant space programs, um, starting from lunar outposts to deep space habitat. So very happy that you present your work or your ideas here today, Brent. Thank you, Sandra. Can you hear me? Can I repeat? Yes. Okay, okay. I don't know. Oh, okay. uh, wow, great introduction, Sandra. And Melody, you made it a very difficult uh, act to follow there. So, and that's good news. Um, I'm going to march through maybe something a little different, more words than pictures, but I think important information. Um, it's called rule to thumb. A rule of thumb is a broadly accurate guide or principle based on experience or practice rather than theory. And uh, granted, uh, we don't have a long history, but we do have some practice. One example is measure twice and cut once. If you ever built anything, that's such an important rule to follow. 
Of these rules of thumb, some are obvious, most are biased, and the rest are controversial. They're intended to steer design engineers and space architects away from doom concepts, while at the same time direct them towards areas that hold promise for being effective, workable solutions. And just a spoiler alert, some of these are darling concepts within the community of space architecture. Um, I have a long list and then have compressed that for this presentation. You can see the ones lifted there. I'll talk a little bit about inflatables, suit port, design for in-situ repair and maintenance, zero-G shower, prepackaged foods, lava tubes, and circular floor plans. So with inflatables, um, I label this a solution looking for a problem. And the reason being is that we so quickly gravitate towards an inflatable and that dominates the design space. Um, we use the flexible membrane as the pressure shell. It's collapsed for land, launch and then expanded by the breathable atmosphere on orbit. It's a one-time deployment. Now, the argument basically stems from saying that our launch vehicle is so constrained, I've got to provide more volume on orbit or on the surface of the planet and I'll do that by using an inflatable. The launch vehicles that we have now, uh, from a three meter Cygnus to a 4.5 meter, the shuttle is a flying right now, but a 5.4 meter from the Vulcan, a 7.2 from the New Glenn, and 8.4 for the SLS. Now, those are all habitable structures. Um, and it's a matter, I think, of our design challenge to be able to do that. The uh, typical solution for an inflatable is you'll have a rigid core and then you wrap that with a deployable membrane. So everything has to be uh, basically wrapped around this rigid core and at the ends of the rigid core are, you know, berthing or docking ports in order to assemble the final configuration. Uh, it's designed to be uh, packaged and deployed, which really adds a lot of complexity that cannot be underestimated. And that's from everything from your utilities to, you know, all your wiring and other things that uh, have to be considered in terms of, you know, I'm going to package them for launch and then expand them uh, in the uh, workable environments. NASA has a safety factor of four for habitable, uh, flexible membranes, and it's only two for aluminum. So the question of whether or not this is going to be lighter is a real one. It depends on basically the ultimate volume that you're going to have. But uh, if you're going to use the argument of an inflatable being lighter, it may not be. The entire life of this habitat is do dominated by a one-time deployment. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, that there are many challenges in just doing that. Uh, NASA's inflatable transhab used a multi-layer polymer and Kevlar membrane, approximately 12 inches at 30 centimeters thick that provided the NMLD protection. So that again is another uh, aspect of you know, providing uh, important environmental protection for an inflatable. I mentioned the docking ports and hatches. You could include, and I think I've seen some images of radio ports that have been woven into the fabric structure but uh, most logically, you'll have them you know, at the extremes of that 
packaged tube there, but um, a radial port is an important part of a, an architecture, and you don't want to just relegate it to saying, oh, I'm going to include notes. Um, you know, that having it there as being part of your overall uh, pressure vessel is an important design solution. Um, in my experience, uh, length is a better unit for packaging than diameter. Um, and that is because if you like single file packaging in order to have visual access and physical access, then you get that by length. You don't get that by girth. Windows, uh, much like radial ports, can be woven in, um, but this is a little more challenging than including them into a rigid cell structure. And then the failure of a flexible membrane is catastrophic. We do everything to prevent that, but regardless, you lose your uh, pressurized environment, you lose the pressure shell. So those are a lot of reasons for me not gravitating towards uh, an inflatable, and in particular at the front end. If we're kind of forced into that, okay. Or, you know, the option, and with a number of these things, if, let's say, your customer says, I want an inflatable, well, then as space architects, we want to give them the best solution. But this is if you have the choice up front, then these are some of the reasons why not to do that. The suit port. Um, basically, the suit port is a device to minimize the dust problem that we are going to experience on the moon and Mars. And when you go EVA and being able to bring the suits back into any environment is going to bring that dust as well. So the idea is that you design the backpack so that it mates up to a structural interface and then it ends up being the door through which the crew go in and out in order to get in and out of the suit. And the suits then would remain outside. And there are various concepts for that, whether on one side you see the suit lock and then the other is the suit port. The difference of suit lock is you go into an airlock type structure and then you can actually pressurize that volume. The other with a suit port, the suit stays outside. So um, with this, the suit has to be designed uh, for the pressure load. In particular, if it's going to open up to the pressurized environment inside. Now we deal with a 4.3 PSI in suit design for the most part. And then some of the different habitat concepts for the moon and Mars actually have a reduced pressure down to an 8.2 PSI. But typically, if you want the equivalent of Earth, you have a 14.7 PSI. So once you open that door and you pressurize the suit, all of a sudden the suit is at the same pressure as the cabin pressure. So that's not a typical design that you have with a suit. Um, and it also represents a very critical failure path. You know, if anything were to happen to the suit, you'd lose that cabin pressure. So that's an important consideration in looking at a suit port or a suit lock design. Um, now, granted, uh, dust is a real problem, uh, and this is one means to try to deal with it. But uh, in any event, um, you know, at some point in the life of the suit, you're going to need to bring it into the pressurized environment for servicing. Um, so you still need to do that. So you're still going to be bringing dust into the habitable environment. And because uh, EVA uses the buddy system, 
you're going to need at least two suits, so that takes up quite a bit of real estate, and typically all you would need is a hatch to get through, rather than having two ports side by side for crew members to back up to. So uh, these are some of the considerations for, uh, you know, considering a suit port design in any of your architectures. Um, we as architects ought to demand that our designs be serviceable by the crew in situ. So whether it's in a 16G environment, weightless environment, and bring that requirement right up front and really make it work. Um, it's not good enough to take three or four parts out before you can get to the one you want to service. And um, as the expression up above says, it's difficult to change the fan belt while the motor's running. And our equivalent is, let's say, with the environmental control life support system, can you turn that off and service it? Or, you know, does something still need to be providing environmental control for the crew while they're servicing that? These are things that we have to consider in our design. So um, access, uh, also how you remove them. And again, we're not sending career mechanics. We're sending astronauts that have another function, you know, where they're going than servicing their equipment. But they're going to have to do it. So we've got to make life easy on them by us incorporating all of the features that are required to make the equipment serviceable. So, you know, there are some components that are scheduled to be replaced, others that just fail all on their own. Um, we have to deal with electrical, electronic, and fluid systems. Fasteners, uh, especially like in the lightless environment, should be captured, you know, so that I can back it off, move it out, and I don't have to be chasing some floating washer. Um, the uh, harnesses, they're a big deal. They're a big deal on the ground, but in space, you know, they can represent a certain structure that's resisting us to be able to remove a component. And how we gang up components, too. You know, the whole idea of what an ORU is uh, is an important strategy, and it should affect us as designers. Um, then, uh, moving down a little bit, in the weightless environment, uh, unless a crew member is in a foot restraint, they can only use one hand. Um, they have to anchor themselves with the other hand, use that as a restraint, and that's not a very good working position. So being able to provide a foot restraint so you have both hands free is important. Um, the lighting, uh, any other things that we have, be sure to include those in our designs. Zero G shower. Uh, Melody showed a shower, and that was uh, on Mars, and that makes sense. There's a little gravity there. We have one experience of that, and that was on Skylab. And uh, you can read up there where only Jerry Carr uh, claimed to enjoy it. Uh, fellow crew member Owen Garriott said he would skip the whole thing. Now, in the weightless environment, the water doesn't know which way to go. The air doesn't know which way to go. So we have to provide some way to, to move it. And with the Skylab shower, you can see it was a collapsible membrane uh, that he spent quite a bit of time getting together. I'll read it. You had to mix water in a third quart container, so much hot, so much cold. 
you had soap that was probably better used for veterinary practice because it made you itch. We sprayed water on ourselves with a sprayer and then had to vacuum it off with a suction device. He goes on to say, one thing worth noting is that we were in a low pressure environment and so whatever you got uh, water on you, it went uh, to dry itself off. It got extremely cold because it was evaporating so quickly. It took a lot of vacuuming to get all the water out of the inside of the cylinder. You had to use a lot of towels to get dry. During our mission, we usually just took sponge baths every night with a washcloth and a towel. So with all of that, you wonder, um, should I include a shower? Uh, is it effective and is the crew going to use it? Now, Skylab was, uh, I believe, uh, 5 PSI pure oxygen environment. It was compatible with a lot of the Apollo uh, life support systems. So we're dealing with 14.7 uh, typically. You know, uh, but regardless, in the weightless environment, um, our sponge bath is good enough. Um, you still need to exercise, so you're going to be working up a sweat that way and also from EVA. But uh, to include uh, a shower is a major ordeal. Prepackaged food favored over growing in situ. Um, and Melody, I, I think you showed some plant growth areas in you know your solution there. Um, the overhead. The overhead. Hold on. Um, okay, I think we got that there. Uh, but uh, the overhead associated, associated with producing any food is tremendous. And also, there's a risk, you know, if you have a crop failure or something like that. Not all of our, you know, food uh, would we like to be growable. You know, there's other things that uh, we can bring along. And to consider that we have nutritionists looking at not only what food, but uh, our whole caloric intake. Uh, what we need for nutrition and everything and bring it with us seems to be a safer, more reasonable solution, at least for the near term. Their near term could be 20, 50, could be 100 years, but regardless, you know, for the crew to be able to do that rather than presume that we're going to be pretty good farmers and spend quite a bit of time, you know, producing and processing that food for the crew to eat and to have a, a healthy diet. Lava tubes, again, a darling subject. Um, you know, it's one of those ones where, hey, hey, there's something out there. We can use that for a habitat, or at least maybe for radiation protection. Um, well, as a habitat, it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, because we know nothing about that in terms of it holding pressure loads that we would need, and even its geometry. In terms of radiation protection, uh, yeah, it could work, um, but we're going to have to put something in there. Uh, the other options would be that uh, we bury it and just pile up a lot of regolith like on the moon, or there's some independent structure upon which we put the regolith. Again, we're using uh, the regolith as the radiation protection uh, on the moon. So uh, lava tubes, uh, again, looking at those um, Really, um, I would want to see that they might work, but I, I think it's uh, it's a dream, and it's probably not going to come true over all the analysis that would uh, be required in order for us to 
put our habitats in or try to somehow uh, live in a lava tube. Circular floor plans. Um, uh, when looking at a lot of these, and over the career I have, uh, that if you can avoid this, you're better off. The modularity with a radio concentric plant is difficult. We tend to migrate towards uh, more of a rectilinear solution and packaging and changing things in and out. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, you know this little diagram here, if you were to try to make a you know wedge-shaped modular, you couldn't remove it. Uh, it would be that you have to remove the content. So. It affects the modularity in terms of packaging. It affects the distribution of utilities and being radial and concentric. Whereas if you have a linear one, it's a lot easier to pop up access to all of your utilities. It again ends up being rectilinear in terms of the modularity. And going back to one of the other metrics that I mentioned, the length versus girth. Uh, tends to be favored uh, for a lot of reasons. And in this, in order to make it work, you have to have some kind of increment that would deal with an aisleway uh, in order for the crew, or just make big, larger spaces. Now, if I'm going to make a bathroom bigger and have the same components in it, it's no more efficient. So we want a right-size bathroom. Uh, and I think you can get that easier with a linear solution versus uh, radio concentric. That is the presentation. I wanted to compress it. I don't know how we did it on time, but uh, I'm open for a few questions here. Sandra? Thank you very much, Brent. Um, we have a few questions. I think the first one was from Samuel. What about lessons learned from Bigelow Aerospace? There again? Is that is that the question? Yeah. Well, it was a comment or a question, but he asked about lessons learned from Bigelow Aerospace and Trans Hub. Lessons from Trans Hub. Lessons from Transat. Oh, um, that was a pretty major study that uh, was done at JSC, and you know we have a number of our space architects that were involved with that. And uh, you know, uh, I think we learned a lot in, in how we could build, uh, let's say, an inflatable solution. But I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about given the choice. You know, is that what we need to do. And uh, are we overlooking other things that uh, are available with some of our large diameter launchers that we have right now uh, that could solve the problem of the habitat without going through the complexity of uh, actually inflating it? And we had quite a few comments. Are, are there questions from uh, the audience? Yes, good morning. Hello, hello, can you guys hear me? Yes, good morning, guys. Uh, Rick Garcia, background, uh, current US Space Force. Um, okay, is that better? Yes, um, so great presentation, sir. Can you go back about five charts where you had the airlock? 
Okay, so the suit lock and the suit port. So one of the things uh, in my experience, um, professionally speaking, integration, capital I, is a massive consideration, right? When we're talking about space architecture systems, ecosystems and system of systems, right? So um, are you guys considering integration into your footprint of the design? And what I mean by that, it's not just for, in a sense, today, but the downstream effects. So one of the things that we've, we've encountered with the integration kind of system of systems approaches, if we design and we try to, we look at integration and try to consider a lot of front loading, that suit lock may have additional benefits for like an emergency type of situation, right? So just want to get a feel for when you guys are working on these type of systems, do you guys consider in your technical footprint that we might have to consider additional side benefits to just the initial task at hand, if that makes sense? Over. Yeah, it does. And I think that's an excellent question. And I'm a firm believer in the integration of system to system. I, mean, I, I think as space architects, that's what we have to do. Um, now, the option to this is having a traditional airlock. Okay, you get in, there's no suit interface, you know, that, that, and then you would doff your suit and then you go into the other environment. So, ideally, the cleanliness would happen in that space. It's the only thing I'm trying to point out here is that by having a suit port or a suit lock, you're throwing requirements onto the space suit to have a pressure interface there. And if you do that, now the one that I mentioned, I think it's the biggest one is that the suit has to now take a load that it wasn't designed for. If it's designed okay. for 4.3, that's that's a lot. You know, now the suit's going to become a lot heavier, a lot more, you know, I guess complex because it has to take anywhere from an 8.2 to a 14.7 pressure load. Okay. And you break that. Yeah. So that's a consideration here. We're not, you know, we are going to go EVA or we're going to go out in suits. But it's whether this is the solution or whether a more traditional airlock that you would get in, you close the hatch, and you open the other hatch. Right, right. And and, and I guess the follow-on or the other question within that sub-question is if we're building the, 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 the systems of systems now, and I'm, I'm biased towards automotive um, because I've had experience with uh, like Formula One, Aston Martin Racing, um, now I need to open my mindset about multiple vendors, right? because it's just not gonna be NASA. It may be SpaceX, it may be a tertiary, a subcontractor space that may design a suit, right? A different manufacturer. So if if that thought process of universality or universal fit is embedded in there, I'm, I'm biased to think that if you, you build the suit lock system, maybe it's easier for you to do a universal fit approach, right? Because you can have downstream benefits five, 10 years down the line where you have on-ramping new vendors, right? Rather just form fit function for one type of system, right? Does that make sense? Yes. Over. It, yes, it does. Okay. Yeah. Because, because we have uh, more speakers, so uh, Ricky, yeah. they, uh, you can more questions okay. later on. All right. Okay. Uh, Sandra, is uh, Alma next? 
Um, yes, I think it's me next, right? Or is it Alma? Maybe you decide. I'm okay with, with both. Yes, Alma. Alma, you're next. Yeah, Alma is next. Oh, okay. <laughs> then um, I have the pleasure of introducing Alma. Alma is an architecture student at uh, TU Wien, and I'm very happy that she chose the TU Wien to do her diploma in space architecture. She is living and working in Pula in Croatia, and she has also joined, or she's an active member of the Adriatic Aerospace Association. So I think her goal is to become the first Croatian space architect. And since this year, she has uh, been elected as a member of the Space Architecture Technical Committee. I know Alma for a few years now, and she has been on almost every space architecture competition that I know, and taking parts in workshops all over the place. Um, so today she's presenting her diploma project, and it would be great if you give great feedback to her. Good. Good. Uh and uh, uh, Sandra, uh, yes. I want to mention that uh, uh, Alma had a, a huge hand in our beautiful poster. And, yes. uh, and uh, I'm looking at the crowd here. All the seats are taken, Sandra. And uh, I, will, I, will thank, I will thank Alma for it. <laughs> uh, she's a great, uh, well, in the SATC, I have to say, she is busy with many things. So she is a very active member, and besides other activities, she is also co-chairing this event. Yes, thank you, Alma. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, let me start. <clears throat> well, today I will be presenting you uh, my master's thesis topic. It's called Explore, and it is uh, Lunar Exploration and Habitation Rover. Uh, the thesis is still not finished. It's still uh, in, in process, let's say. So some design um, issues can be changed or can be upgraded so but this is like the the so far uh, what how does it look like so let us start uh, just a second all right well the explore is a lunar exploration and habitation rover it is designed as a proposal for the artemis space camp and if we talk about nasa's artemis um, uh, program it aims to land astronauts on moon by 2025 and also to give the, uh, those astronauts a place to live and work on, on the moon uh, NASA's uh, Artemis base camp concept aims also to develop a modern uh, lunar habitat a lunar terrain vehicle or LTV and also um, a mobile home or it's often referred to as habitable mobility platform and this habitable mobility platform uh, should be optimized for extreme lunar environment, should also be used for in-situ scientific exploration and human and cargo transport, um, should also have, uh, should also be suited for two plus two astronauts, which means that uh, should host two astronauts and another two in case of emergencies. Um, it should have two weeks long effective autonomy and be adapted to dimensions of the transportation vehicle. And also to be able to be configured uh, differently according to function. And to this part, we will come to later on. Um, 
I would also like to mention the Artemis timeline. <clears throat> As you can see, uh, we are quite busy um, in this decade. Uh, what's happening? Uh, basically, Artemis 1 um, has been done last year. Uh, next is Artemis 2 uh, that is uh, happening next year in November 2024. And Artemis 3 and 4, uh, this is when the humans are going back to the surface of the moon. And so the year 2025 is quite important for the explore because it has to be finished soon. So it could be um, taken, taken to the moon along with these humans or uh, uh, actually before them would be perfect. Um, moving on to the location, to the Artemis location, it's the lunar south pole. Um, it is a good target for a future human landing because it is the most thoroughly investigated region on moon. And the landing site on the South Pole has not yet been determined, but all of these sites, um, all of these sites of interest that you can see on this image, have many advantages um, compared to the other locations on the Moon. For example, all of them are um, have um, available sunlight. Um, all, they also have permanently shadowed regions with potential presence of water, mild temperature differences, uh, relatively flat terrain, and most importantly, uh, Earth visibility and direct communication. Um, if we talk about requirements and rationale for the Explore, um, I will not go into this entire list because we don't have much time, but I would like to mention a few of them. Uh, of course, the requirements for the crew capacity, you already mentioned two plus two astronauts, um, because the safety and uh, performance is uh, prioritized. We, um, I also thought about the mission duration, uh, two weeks for short-term missions, uh, also to minimize the commute back to the base at the end of each day. But the, mm, mm, the Artemis program is searching for at least 10 years of uh, mission dur duration, let's say for the, um, uh, for the longer periods. Um, then we, I also should mention that, of course, lunar environment survivability should survive extreme temperatures of the lunar south pole and uh, operate at least two hours in a permanently shadow regions, should be, of course, resilient and adaptable. Um, robotic manipulation, uh, of course, to support science exploration because it offers greater diversity in scientific research from geology to water ice sampling and should be able to be operable on by onboard and remote crew um, on lunar surface or earth and um, i think this is this is everything i'll mention from this list moving on uh, i did also a comparison list just a second um the comparison list i have compared lunar cruiser the lunar terrain vehicle and athlete also in order to understand uh, vehicle concepts uh, better and also to adapt certain parameters uh, to the Explore and also maybe to improve them. But also I will not go into this list in detail because we don't have much time. I will just skip on to the vehicle habitation concept and vehicle logic. As you can see, um, lots of sketches have been made in order to find, a, a, let's say a perfect form and it does not mean that the perfect form has been found, but um, the vehicle logic, let's say it, <clears throat> it consists out of uh, modules uh, or pieces, other pieces, for example, the cockpit, 
the rocker bogey chassis, also uh, the payload that goes onto this chassis. In this case, it is the habitation uh, module and the robotic arm. So if you take a look at this first icon, uh, you can see the explore the side, side view in this compact form when everything is put together, but it can be detached. Uh, for example, the, the cockpit can be detached from the chass chassis and the, the payload can be also detached fr from it. Um, so, and if you look at it in the top view, um, I call it, uh, you can see that, um, that it's also compact. I call this a mobile configuration because this is the configuration that is used when the, uh, when the Explorer is traveling uh, on the lunar surface. Um, we have packed inflatables on the side and the cockpit is of course connected the, to the chassis and, uh, and to the payload, to the hab habitation in this case. But when it's standing still or when it's time to um, maybe stop traveling and do some scientific research or rest or sleep, then um, there is a, st a stationary configuration where this packed inflatable is inflated. Um, it's depacked and inflated. Um, and um, the idea also behind this, uh, as you can see, the stop view, this mobile configuration, um, it is important to think about what do, do astronauts need? Um, what do they have to have always available? Uh, like the dining, the kitchen, the living area, and the hygiene. But in, sta in stationary configuration, um, it is, sorry, just a second. Uh, can you, s sorry. Okay, uh, in stationary configuration, um, when the, the shell is uh, uh, inflated, you get also the science lab, the gym, the crew quarters and the sleeping pods. And here you can see it better. How does it look like this modular design? Um, we have, of course, the detachable cockpit. You can see it better here. Um, the detachable cockpit has suit ports. Actually, it has suit locks. Um, it also uh, and can be also used as separate vehicle. Uh, we also have this expandable habitat. Um, it actually the the chassis can can carry any kind of of payload, but in this case we have this expandable habitat. Uh, also with airlock and uh, two suit locks on the back side. You cannot see it now. Um, we have the Roker bogey chassis uh, that is used uh, as this habitat's wheels and can also be used for cargo transport. And we also have robotic arm that is used for uh, sample collecting for scientific research and also as a spare wheel um, when, it's, when the cockpit is detached. So uh, if we talk about tra transformable architecture, we have this, uh, we have, I have already mentioned the mobile configuration earlier. Um, then we have the stationary configuration when the inflatables are inflated we have the cargo transport. Uh, this is only the chassis connected to the cockpit without the payload. And then we have the separated configuration. As you can see here, the cockpit uh, is using his robotic arm as uh, wheels. Um, and it's also used um, for um, going faster uh, if, if it's necessary to detach from the, uh, from the habitat and 
uh, go somewhere faster and going back faster. Right, the floor plans. Um, even though there is only one um, floor or um, there is uh, two floor plans because in, it's in when the shell is deflated and the, when the shell is inflated. Here you can see how the cockpit is connected to the to the habitation. Mm, in between uh, is an airlock and of course the tunnel, which can be disconnected. Uh, here you can see the suit locks, um, and you exit through here. Um, later on, there will be an image showing how this um, happens. And just mentioning um, pretty quick the kitchen, the dining, and the living, as you can see it on the other image as well. But uh, when the shell is uh, inflated, the science lab uh, becomes bigger, becomes usable. You can see the, the container that the robotic arm is uh, putting samples in. Uh, and also the crew quarters um, are usable at the moment. Uh, the main entrance or the, the, the part where you connect this um, uh, vehicle to the, to the main habitat or the main base happens at the end, at the rear end. Um, there is a hatch door at, um, with standardized measures, but there is also uh, suit, suit locks on the back. Um, which I also uh, have an image later, but this part can be maybe changed. Moving on to the section, um, this is maybe to get a better view of how big everything is um, and how um, how big humans are in this um, in this vehicle. Um, of course, the top part is used for um, habitation and living and working, and the bottom part of the vehicle is used for engine and batteries and life support systems. Um, right. So, in the, also here you can see a section when it's deflated shell and when uh, the shell is inflated. Right. And coming coming here to the last slide, um, this is a perspective section. It's quite important, I think, for people to see how does it look like in 3D. Um, maybe for somebody, some of you will be easier to imagine themselves in there and um, um, to get a better perspective of how everything looks like. And here on the side, um, actually just a little explanation of how the, the suit locks work. Actually, we have here a side panel on the cockpit that slides one meter and then the suit port, um, uh, the, actually the suit is uh, visible. So uh, people can, uh, astronauts can exit and enter through here. Um, so there is two suit locks on the cockpit and also two on the, on the habitation. Here you can see, uh, this is the main suit port entrance and exit where the back panel, panel or, or the lid rotates for 150 degrees. And if uh, if the docking is happening when the the vehicle is connecting to uh, another habitat, the back panel or the, or the lid rotates also 150 degrees, but together with the suit parts. All right, so uh, this is everything uh, from me for now. If you have some questions, please ask, or if you wanna send uh, an email uh, also to ask something or to have some um, uh, talks, arguments, um, you are very welcome, welcome to do that. Thank you very much.
next Sandra, but uh, I had only one comment to make. Whenever I see a little rover like this, I'm reminded of a, a project that uh, uh, was done at Boeing by none other than Brad Griffin called Daylight Rover. And uh, have you seen that, Alba? Yes, I have. Yes. Oh, you're popular. Great. Uh, please go ahead and ask any other questions. But uh, uh, I think Sandra <laughs> knows how to keep time better. Uh, it, it would be great if one of you has a question to Alma. If not, I asked the question that is in the chat from James. Mm -hmm. Instead of a modular rover, what about using multiple rovers for mission effectiveness? Yes, yes, good question. Uh, it is actually in plan to use at least two rovers. Uh, for the first, um, actually for the third uh, Artemis phase, it is supposed to be only one, one rover, but uh, for the next uh, uh, Artemis uh, mission, it would be good to have uh, two of them on the lunar surface. They are meant to work together, so to say, and be connected with each other. The overall mass, that is a big question. Um, since the material uh, has not yet been uh, decided upon, the overall mass has not yet been calculated. So, yes. That's the most difficult questions to our students. Yes, yes. What is the mass? Um, okay, there was one question by, uh, two questions, uh, but we keep the questions until the end. One question, mm -hmm. uh, the launch of the rover, would it fit in the current launch vehicles? Yes, uh, even though it would not fit, it would have to be detached. It would not fit when it's uh, all uh, uh, attached to, it, uh, all the models attached to each other, but uh, detached would fit into Starship. Okay, thank you very much. Unfortunately, we have agreed to two questions per presentation. So we will keep the questions until the end of the first session and then go through them again. Um, thank I, you very much. May thank you, Anna. May I introduce you, Sandra? That would be lovely. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, uh, Sandra has been working at the uh, Vienna University of Technology for some years. And uh, uh, she has a most excellent group of students every year. I am jealous. And uh, uh, she produces uh, not just manuscripts and conference proceedings, but books upon books about works that her uh, students continue to do every year. And uh, uh, I see her at conferences. Most recently, uh, she took a bunch of her students to uh, the uh, uh, UAE and presented at the, uh, at the expo. Am I right, Sandra? Do you have something to do there? And uh, yes. <laughs> And, uh, uh, you know, it's delightful uh, to see uh, Sandra handle 
and a very large number of students. And uh, I'm, I'm, I was so happy to talk to a class. I'm sure some of you will too. I know that Marco and Ash, have you, Brad? Oh, you, 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 we got, we got, we got a willing victim here, Sandra, and Scott too is smiling over there. Uh, so uh, welcome you, uh, Sandra, and we look forward to your presentation. Uh, thank you very much, Mutu. Of course, uh, please tell us about you before you present as well. You know, I'm just excited to see you. <laughs> um, I have a short presentation because uh, we have a few others coming up, but I show you some recent projects. So we just started an exhibition at the Technical Museum in Vienna that is showcasing our research on space architecture. It's quite a special exhibition because it's an arrangement with the TU Wien and it's in, it's called the Science Corner. So it's, I think we are the first architecture department that is exhibiting in the Science Corner of the TU Wien. And we show some projects there. I show you some of the exhibits right now. This is the Haven Lunar Port by Sabrina Kerber. Sabrina Kerber is now, of course, a space architect and has finished. She works in Holland. This is a design for a landing and housing facility on the moon's south pole. And for her, the sustainable reuse of discarded lander components uh, to create this launch and landing area for incoming and outcoming crews was important. Her design is a long-term habitat. The habitat is equipped to... Sandra, sorry, we cannot see the presentation. We are oh. not sharing the presentation. Okay, sorry. Okay, no, I thank you very much. Otherwise, it's a bit boring. Um, good. So uh, this was the first image of the exhibition at the Technical Museum. Um, then, can you see it now? Okay, this is the yes. project from Sabrina Kerber. It's a lunar port and bay. So it's a habitat for a permanent crew and a non-permanent crew. And her focus was on uh, using and reusing discarded lander components. So the habitat is equipped uh, to accommodate a permanent crew of four who will work at the arrival port and conduct research on lunar habitability. And in addition, they will have uh, accommodation for four astronauts for seven day acclimatization and training before they will be sent off to other research outposts. So this is like the lunar port where the crew arrives and it departs. The architectural concept is designed to address the challenges of a multi-crew approach, uh, which has potentially social issues among to be solved. The habitat itself comprises of a rigid central core in the multi-layer inflatable, and in addition, the habitat's radiation feeding is made of empty propulsion tanks from discarded land at these end stages. So the radiation and micrometeorite shielding make use of in situ resource regulate in conjunction with this discarded propulsion tanks. 
Um, so the remarks, the benefits are immediate safe disposal of the excavated material during the pneumatic process and great time efficiency because many processes can run uh, simultaneously. And furthermore, the approach prevents the need to launch additional machinery to create the regular shielding to the moon. The regular field tanks are placed around the habitat and serve as the horizontal shielding and additional regular field decks cover the habitat top. The habitat itself is spread over two levels, a surface and a subsurface level. On the surface level is the entrance to the habitat with two airlocks and there's also a greenhouse module and a green colony, a gallery and uh, that they have also included a cupola window to watch the stars and to interact with the plants on the green wall. Uh, this is the 3D printed model of one of my projects. Here, the challenge of uh, uncertainty was part of the lunar base design because the, there is the moonwalk is based on the premise that space and its elements are closely related to human behavior. And the challenge is in planning space for unknown user with changing requirements. So the considerations include a few levels of adaptability, for example, to ensure long-term functioning, uh, it is required to change the research site, mission objectives, and other mission-related details. That is why this lunar base is mod mobile, and it has six legs that function as landing, standing, and locomotion tools, and occasionally as bionic arms. Then the inflatable rigidized structure offers 12 docking possibilities for plug-ins and expansion to adapt to future mission scenarios. The structure is multi-layered that permits partial exchange in order to enhance radiation shielding and uh, protection from meteorites. And the interior of the habitat can also be adapted according to changing user preferences. This is a model that is designed for a deployable habitat for long state duration missions on Mars. It is a system that is compact for transportation and can be expanded when placed on the Martian surface. For this, uh, the team uh, developed a deployable structure that consists of four subsystems, a protective casing, a telescopic core, expanding gears, and an inflatable membrane. The habitat will be transported in a compacted form and placed at a selected location. And of course, we assume that there are numerous previous robotic missions to Mars that have prepared the necessary infrastructure. And once placed at the right location, the three casing elements unlock and the deployment sequence is initiated. And then the compressive springs of the gears are released, pushing the casing elements radially outwards. To ensure radiation protection and MMOD shielding, the design uses ground-up regolith to fill the outer layer of the membrane in the final deployed state. 
The habitat uh, has ensures a protective environment for a four-person group, and it's often radiation and micromatoid shielding. Natural light is provided by cupola, and the core access the circulation distributor horizontally and vertically. The central space will be naturally lit during the day, and all the modulars can be uh, expanded by placing multiple modules of them. The next project is a project from Ivan Matas. Uh, this has the aim to conceive an orbital facility for the recycling of space debris. For him, this was a big issue because debris of any size poses an imminent risk to all future, current and future space missions. And worldwide concepts and technologies are being developed to find solutions how to remove debris from orbit. The vast majority is based on capturing and deorbiting the debris, casing it to burn, and during atmospheric reentries. So his idea was. Uh, to use the material where it is in situ resource utilization in orbit, and uh, as it may present a valuable resource for future on orbit construction. So, the main focus for this work is towards the architecture and the design of an orbital space station that is made to research on how to do on in situ resource utilization in orbit uh, with uh, space debris. The recycling space station, he called it at R3 debris, which means research concerning resource utilization and recycling of debris, is capable of housing a four-person crew on of six to 12 missions and up to eight people. Uh, it contains a shredder for rough processing, a robotic arm, and the trust platform, in addition to a habitat module. And the module concept is uh, similar to NASA's Trans Hub and the Bigelow Aerospace BA330. Its interior layered features private quarters, also a social hub, hygiene, and sports facilities, and a greenhouse. And uh, everything is planned to be arranged in a non-conflicting way within a very limited volume. Uh, that is uh, another view of the exhibition. So if you're in Vienna, come by and visit the exhibition and me at the TUVIN. There are a few more models to see and also some engineering and scientific uh, aspects to consider. And before I introduce our next speaker, I would like to draw your attention to our brand new MBA. We have a Master of Business Administration in Space Architecture at the TU Wien. It started this year, but it is a circular program. It is a three-semester part-time program, blocked in modules, and spans an arc between economics, engineering, architecture, and other technical and social sciences. So in case you're interested in this MBA, please contact me or visit their website. And I thank you very much for listening to me. And I see if I have questions before I introduce the next 
speaker. Any, any questions in the chat, Kim? Okay, Esther, yes, please come and visit uh, or let me know when you come and we can go and visit the exhibition together. Did you, did you say that the exhibition is on in uh, Torino? No, in Vienna for one year now. Okay. It's a one year long exhibition. Okay. All right, I think there are no questions. I, I have one, uh, Sandra, and uh, uh, how many students do you handle every semester? Um, well, I have a few, I have different kinds of students. I have the master and bachelor students um, every year, 50 to 60 in the module. This is why I invite you for a lecture, for example. Then I have some special design studios. One is being introduced by Paolo Caratelli in the next presentation. We had the pleasure of working together with the Abu Dhabi University and work together in a design studio. Here we had also 40, 50 students. And then uh, we have the MBA program. This is less, we only have 15. And I have another program that is for adolescents that are 14 to 16 year old. Here I have 20 students for two years. Very so good. quite yeah. a few. <laughs> Space architecture is popular, Brian. Uh, yes, well, for, yes, it is becoming more and more popular. I get more and more uh, questions for diploma. More and more people want to do the diploma or dissertation. We need also more lecturers to handle well, that. We are always available, Sandra. And uh, uh, you know, I think I think it's very very interesting to know that even in Southern California, I mean, uh, we we are sitting right next to SpaceX here, and um, you know, we have a lot of interest in thinking about new visions about space. Now, uh, please continue with our, our next speaker, Sandra. Uh, thank you very much, Madhu. I have the pleasure of introducing Paolo Caratelli, who is a very nice colleague and became a friend. Um, in the last years, we worked together. Uh, Paolo Caratelli is associate professor at the College of Engineering at the Department of Architecture and Design of Abu Dhabi University for over 10 years. He's also a licensed architect in Italy and a researcher on architectural and urban sustainability and investigator about social and cultural changes in architectural design. He has also started a program on extreme environment architecture at his faculty at the Abu Dhabi University and yes, Paolo, good to see you. And nice to see you too. <laughs> <laughs> Please, the floor is yours. Thank you, Sandra, for the introduction. And uh, hello, everyone. 
I'm uh, start sharing uh, my presentation. Uh, okay, that uh, is uh, Sandra is uh, has been part as uh, she introduced is a uh, uh, collaboration that we initiated and a collaboration that uh, born at uh, the Space Architecture Technical Committee where we were colleagues and we start discussing and trying to find a way how to have a shared educational collaboration. So we, in the fall, during the fall semester 2021, we started this, this idea to have a, a cross-national uh, design studio between the design studio of uh, TU Vienna and uh, three sections of a sustainable design course uh, at uh, Budapest University. The first challenge was uh, the pandemic, obviously, because uh, we were still in pandemic and we were partially, partially still in lockdown. So it was not only the problem of communication between uh, Vienna and uh, Abu Dhabi, so from uh, Europe and the Middle East that uh, can be solved uh, doing uh, the course essentially fully online, but it was also the, pro the problem how to deal with our students because uh, we had limited opportunities to, to meet uh, directly. Despite that, uh, and despite the other challenge that it was uh, how to harmonize uh, uh, the two different uh, levels because uh, the three section of uh, Abu Dhabi University for a total of around 50 students, they were undergraduate and uh, the 10, 12 students uh, of uh, Vienna, they were uh, postgraduate. So how to harmonize uh, the two for uh, this uh, shared project uh, that we named uh, Lunar Oasis like a, a homage to Middle East. I mean, the idea of the oasis as the place of life in a hostile and extreme environment. We, we solved practically creating mixed groups of uh, projects, around 10 groups. And uh, these mixed groups, uh, they were uh, uh, designed has uh, really designed teams uh, in terms of a professional. So with uh, a group leader, usually the obviously the the student uh, with uh, bigger uh, bigger experience, uh, and uh, five to six uh, member that they will collaborate uh, with uh, the research and uh, design and all the efforts uh, to towards the production of the final outcome. The outcomes, they have been beyond our expectation. All the groups, they work really, really committed. And all the works, they produced something that despite, especially talking about Abu Dhabi University students, it was the very first time that they face uh, a similar uh, a similar task, a similar challenge. 
and uh, they were uh, they have been driven even uh, into the general problem of sustainability so we tried and uh, we gave all the information to let them understand that uh, sustainability in space like in every extreme environment is is not an option is a necessity so you have to do everything with less waste is a resource the the concept of waste not even exist so despite the initial uh, uh, alignment and the try to better understand how to realize a project in uh, an environment that uh, doesn't allow you so much and uh, going beyond uh, the usual and traditional uh, mindset that uh, okay i have to build something i can use a reinforced concrete i can use i can bring a metal i can bring panels i can bring so we invited also them to have this project first of all designing the mission and so giving all the requirements and the limitation that a similar project could have so starting with oasis as a concept and this is a following it's only a brief collection of some images per each project just uh, i mean to give you a, a glimpse but uh, all the projects at the end they were and done within one semester so one semester i mean four four months working in groups that they were necessarily contacting themselves only online a total of 60 students at the end belonging to 24 different uh, nationalities uh, with uh, different uh, even uh, time zones so even to accord each other uh, related to the to the timing so at the end uh, it was an uh, extraordinary experience uh, not only under the pedagogical aspect but uh, even uh, in terms uh, of uh, uh, cultural exchange uh, uh, relation and uh, the final result that uh, you can see here that have uh, i repeat are only i mean one or two images for uh, each project but uh, each each one was uh, really supported with uh, extensive research and uh, uh, an extremely deep and thought work and considering all these uh, challenges uh, all uh, the problems related uh, how to connect uh, each other and how to coordinate uh, i think that uh, has been a fantastic personal uh, professional educational a fantastic experience i don't know how many of these 60 students they would became in future space architect surely someone yes for sure and uh, there are 
surely some students uh, they already have me and uh, the same here uh, in the spring semester in the following in the uh, following semester i had uh, two students at abu dhabi university that they ask to have uh, a graduation undergraduate graduation projects uh, uh, about this uh, topic many other students are uh, continuously asking especially in uh, in this region uh, science that uh, uae became one of the country member of the space club there is uh, an emirati astronaut now on orbit and uh, so the even uh, the interest and the expectation also in this uh, region of the world are uh, constantly growing towards uh, this uh, this kind of this uh, field of uh, specialization most of the project uh, they used uh, largely class one and two uh, habitats so from rigid to inflatable some even uh, uh, challenging some groups also challenging with class three uh, habitats on the moon surface which means using in situ resource utilization largely and this is, is uh, practically one uh, the detail of one of the last uh, of the last project this one has been the only the only one uh, opportunity that i had to meet uh, with uh, my students uh, in person after uh, already several months we were in october and we start uh, the course online uh, end of august so after more than one month that we spent online this was the only one opportunity that we had to to meet in occasion of the iec in dubai and we have also the opportunity to meet hadza mansouri the very first emirati astronaut on that occasion we had an interesting conversation with Dr. Peter Weiss of Spartan Space about the, his project Eurohub. And we had also the pleasure to meet Olga in, uh, during, uh, during the IEC at the exhibition. So thank you. Not only after in January, 2022, we had the opportunity to present the outcomes of uh, the entire course at the Expo. This is, is the poster that uh, we prepared announcing uh, the official presentation of, uh, the, of uh, the course, the outcomes, the projects at the Ausian Pavilion. And also in this case was uh, an extraordinary experience unfortunately not uh, all the students we were uh, still uh, uh, with uh, some uh, issues for international transportation but we had the opportunity me and sandra finally to to meet in uh, this uh, occasion and uh, we had the presentation at the Haussian pavilion and uh, the final one at the swiss pavilion after that, 
the the courts lunar oasis has been presented at the general assembly of unosa in vienna and has been presented also at the iec in paris this is, is a shot of the interactive presentation that was was presented there last but not least we produced, I mean, a consistent thick booklet are around 200 pages of, uh, with all the a synthesis, a synthesis of all the projects. And here you can see, I mean, only some, some pages even to evaluate and to understand the quality and the efforts that this heterogeneous group of 60 students they produced in only four months and for mostly of them really starting from scratch not having before had any clue or uh, any information of what an environmental control life system uh, will be or a bioregenerative uh, life support system or uh, how to integrate uh, a greenhouse uh, into an enclosed env environment without uh, talking about uh, other uh, other issues uh, like radiation uh, radiation protection uh, micrometeoroids uh, and so on so Educationally speaking, and uh, as uh, as a teacher, I have to say that uh, this has been one of uh, the most uh, interesting uh, experience and uh, something that uh, we both myself and Sandra we are working. I mean to repeat. At uh, now, I'm. Uh, also pushing more in my university and in the College of Engineering to include this as a subject, a potential subject, and including a larger and more vast topic related to the architecture in extreme environment. Thank you so much. I think that uh, I remained within my uh, 10 minutes uh, slot. And uh, if uh, you have uh, any question, please, or uh, uh, later on uh, during uh, the, the panel discussion, I will be very, very pleased to respond to all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Paolo. Um, we have one question. Is this published somewhere from Esther? Well, yes. Um, yes and no. We have an office, we have a public ISO account, but it was restricted a few weeks ago. So it will be online very soon in the next two days. 
If any of you would like to get this uh, booklet in a printed version, please write to Paolo or me. Please. Okay, any other question? Uh, Paolo, this is Madhu. Uh, Hello, so hi Madhu. I was happy to see you at the IAC. And uh, again, my question is, uh, are there any other programs in that part of the world uh, dealing with uh, space architecture? Unfortunately, not yet, not specifically, uh, I mean, addressed to space uh, architecture. In fact, the very first uh, experiment and one of the challenge was exactly this. It was uh, to introduce uh, within the general course of sustainable design. And uh, so starting with this and uh, uh, asking the student uh, to look, sustainable design means that you have to use as much you can regarding the sustainability. And one of the best, best uh, place to test everything uh, in terms of sustainability, uh, spatial uh, uh, arrangement uh, and uh, technologies, uh, process uh, methodologies, uh, why not to use as paradigm space as the most extreme of the extreme environments? So based on that, even my department start to have a look. And in fact, we, we start building, I mean, uh, another course that will be dedicated to architecture in extreme environments, which is include obviously desert, Antarctica, underwater, but uh, specifically to space architecture, not yet. And I hope uh, some something would uh, start soon. Excellent. Uh, any other questions for Paolo? Please come over. Ben Price, uh, curious. Of, I love the UAE. I've been there before in Abu Dhabi. It's a beautiful place. Um, have the Arabs brought any unique insights as desert dwellers, as cross-Saharan travelers, to that uh, concept of no waste and a very efficient use of, of their space uh, and their resources? They brought any unique insights that you found? So, I mean, UAE uh, currently is. Uh, is uh, doing lots, lots of uh, efforts uh, in order, I mean, especially in terms uh, of resources. As uh, you know, in this uh, region, in this uh, part of the world, uh, is uh, more easier uh, to drill a hole in the ground and find oil instead of water. Water is, uh, I mean, what uh, the very, very precious resource that uh, here. So, uh, most recently, UAE has started a massive, massive campaign of sensibilization and also in terms of how to save resources, save energy, and also the courses, obviously, university courses, they had this input to 
specialize and uh, to uh, assess uh, more and more uh, courses and the specialization uh, in terms uh, of uh, uh, sustainable environmental sustainability or uh, advanced uh, technologies. Uh, I, I would like to add uh, just, uh, I mean, has a, a small addition re related to the, the importance of uh, sustainability in uh, our field, which is uh, also a very, very powerful, powerful driver towards uh, innovation. So space architecture is not only, uh, I mean, uh, exotic or uh, something a fancy uh, way to do architecture in a different way. Is really architecture for uh, an another environment. Is really something that uh, would drive and would. Uh, uh, push the new generation to even to better understand and to reframe what they are thinking about uh, the current uh, ordinary architecture on Earth. So we are constantly constantly talking about spin-in, spin-offs, and one of the most uh, important uh, spin-off uh, from uh, space architecture is exactly this the capability to see our ordinary architecture with new eyes, maybe, or at least I hope. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Any other thoughts or Sandra, shall we go to panel? Uh, yes, I think our next speaker is um, Mark. That's right, okay. Mark, are you here? Yes, I'm here. Wonderful. Yes, I've been, I've been keeping quiet. <laughs> I know. Uh, Sandra, will you introduce it? Yes, but only <clears throat> so far, right? Um, Mark Cohen. Mark Cohen is. Um, I mentioned him already in my introduction about the SCTC. Um, because he is one of the masterminds of the that this community committee technical committee exists. Mark Cohen is a licensed architect. Uh, he has devoted his career to developing the new field of space architecture. That is also one of the reasons why he was awarded the Gordon Woodcock Award, which is the highest award in the space architecture field. Mark Cohen worked at NASA Ames Research Center for 26 years, then at Northrop Grumman for 4.5 years. Uh, he had his own companies. And I know Mark as an enthusiastic space architect who is, I don't know if he likes this description, but I consider him as walking library. He knows everything. He writes really wonderful papers. So if you haven't read papers from Mark, go to our website and have a look at his papers. Uh, OK, thank you, Mark, for joining us again today for 
the Space Architecture Technical Committee gathering. Um, and we're looking forward to your presentation. Okay, and, let, let, let before, me try to get, get it up here. Um, and before uh, I hand over uh, the talk to Mark. Oh, good. Uh, I, I would like to say uh, that uh, uh, Mark uh, is very much a, a no-nonsense uh, debater, and uh, I've enjoyed uh, his uh, uh, wisdom over the years, uh, including from the time I was graduating in school when my professor knew him, and he asked me, have you read Mark Cohen's papers? And uh, that's when I picked up. And my thesis had Mark on the reference. And he questioned me, he quizzed me and said, that is not the right way to use money. Uh, but uh, uh, since then, uh, we've been very close. And uh, uh, welcome you, Mark. And of okay. course, he's also a grandpa now. Yeah, and, I'm, just, uh, Mark, I'm just trying to, can you hear me? We can hear you well, but yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to get this uh, get this screen set up properly to share so the screen. You are on screen now. All you need to do is go down to the bottom, the bottom, uh, and click on the screen icon. That's it. It should do it in Keeps theory. wanting me to keeps wanting me to um, sign in again. Try to click the screen one more time, the, the, the screen icon. And, and no, I meant on the bottom. On the bottom where it says notes, comments, and then you have some icons. It says 105%. There is a note. Go down with the mouse down. All right, okay. Um, it says you are screen sharing. Yes, you are screen sharing. You see my screen? Yes. You can see your screen, uh, you know, if it's, uh, if it's okay, difficult. Okay, I just can't get it. I just can't get it. Um, Full okay. screen. Well, I'll go to slideshow on the top where it says home insert design. Go to slideshow. Slideshow. No? Yes, slideshow. I, I don't see where. Okay. Well, it, I can't get I, Oh, wait a second. Um, View okay, slideshow. Ah, okay, okay. all right. So, um, Mark, before before uh, I, I let you have your uh, say, uh, are you the only person in our group who really knew uh, Buckminster Fuller? I don't know if I'm the only person, oh, I think Brad there were two, there were two earlier people, uh. Zan Gill, whose paper I presented at the 2002 First Space Architecture Symposium, she she worked for Buckminster Fuller, and also before her, I had an intern whose name was Sharon Skolnick, who had worked for Buckminster Fuller. Um, but um, I may I may be I may be the only one on this Zoom call who who, who knew Buckminster Fuller. Okay, please go ahead. Okay, uh, so the the title of this paper is uh, Innovation and Tradition in Space Architecture. And um, I actually wrote this paper as an invited keynote address 
for the uh, Phi Congress that was supposed to be held in Lisbon, Portugal um, in 2021, or actually 2020, but it was it was canceled two times. Uh, anyway, I, I published this paper, or they published it in their proceeding, and um, so this is actually the first time I'm presenting it to anybody. Uh, the, you can see the paper was uh, um, the URL to get it from our uh, from our online bibliography is is here on spacearchitect.org. I don't know if you can see my pointer, but but that's where to find the complete text of the paper, um, which is a lot more extensive than what I'll say in this presentation. Yes, uh, we can see it, and, uh, okay. and I hope you send it All to right, us. Good. So, uh, as as a general uh, approach. Uh, in most societies today, people balance their lives between tradition and modernity. Everybody is sort of doing a balancing act between the two uh, in various ways. And modernity often relates closely to innovation, or at least a positive view of innovation. Similarly, tradition and innovation engage in a dialectical process in which the new transforms the old, but also the old... Um, informs and influences the new in, in certain interesting ways, which I'll touch on in a few cases. So this essay presents a view of these dynamics from my perspective through my career. Uh, now in writing this invited paper, I was told I it should be a personal account and um, should go into my own experiences. So I, I do that to some extent. So this is not sort of an impartial, objective, analytical study. So Buckminster Fuller was my earliest um, mentor. I began uh, became interested in him when I was in high school, and I I followed uh, a, a lot of his uh, projects and developments, attended many of his lectures, talked to him whenever I had the opportunity. And he talks about his Dymaxian principle, which I think is probably the best distillation of his work as a philosophy. And so in, in one of his books, Ideas and Integrities, Fuller recounts a conversation with Dr. Jonas Salk, who was the first inventor of the uh, polio vaccine. Dr. Salk said, I've always felt that these dynamic, these Dymaxian gadgets, cars, houses, maps, etc., were only incidental to what you were really interested in. Can you tell me what your work is? And Fuller answers, yes, I've been thinking about the definition for a long time. I've been engaged in what I call comprehensive anticipatory design science. And Dr. Salk said, that's very interesting because that's a description of my work too. So um, from this, there are, there are three elements, which is, first of all, comprehensiveness, seeing the big picture, the integrated system with all it entails. And this is important because in fact, there are an awful lot of people who don't see the big picture either because they're unable or because they're unwilling to see the big picture. 
then anticipation, foreseeing what the building, the house, the invention, the operation, the system will need in its future development. And I, I think that's, that's um, a really key aspect, which is to foresee what will be needed from an, as uh, empirical and objective a point of view as you can, rather than what you as a designer would like it to have. And then design is science. This is the idea that not only should there be a rational empirical basis for design decisions, but that it should derive from a testable empirical, and I should say falsifiable basis, which is the, um, which is the way it's really discussed in, 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 uh, in scientific theory, in, in the scientific method. Now, another me mentor I had was Robert Maycall, who was the founder of system engineering, who served on the, the space station concept development group at the same time as me in Washington, DC. And he, he had several consulting contracts to come to NASA Ames where I got to know him quite well. And uh, we talked a lot. And I, I believe that Maycall surpassed Fuller in the comprehensiveness dimension of the um, Dymaxion principle. So Maycall and Good's seminal book, System Engineering from 1956, presents innovative, systematic, and quantitative approaches to analyze and solve complex design problems. And fortunately, we had a first edition of that, which I read. It was, it was, it's a really a fantastic book. It's hard to find, but it's well worth, worth it. Uh, it was subsequently um, published in another version as a system engineering handbook, which has been published and republished in many forms. And NASA has adapted a so-called system engineering handbook, which tends to be very formulaic and prescriptive. Um, but from Robert Maycall, I learned to ask always, what are they not seeing? What are they not considering? What are they not taking into account? And what he would always say, what happens if you calculate that? So Maycall's vision differs from the current system engineering religion, as I think of it. Because in his view, it was, it was an open-ended approach where you're trying to get the comprehensive picture consider all the variables, but in the current system engineering religion, everything must be reducible to a deterministic number or it is not important. And so I think the direction that the system engineering discipline has gone has really veered off from, from what Robert Maycall originally intended. So, um, this leads, whoops, went the wrong way. This leads me to um, something I think of as systemic blind spots uh, in, in each of the disciplines of architecture, engineering, and science. Architects look at the big picture, but their grand concept as a design solution tends towards the egotistical and overlooks key practical aspects in the design of a space habitat in a lot of cases. Um, Engineers tend to wish to believe that everything is reducible to a quantitative problem for there, which there must be somehow a quantitative optimization or a deterministic solution. And um, I discussed this at 
some extent in the paper. Uh, and scientists want the best possible accommodation for their experiment or the, their instrument or payload, but they tend to be reluctant to see or embrace the larger design problem and solution of incorporating that instrument into a, a larger space probe or satellite or, or incorporating it into some other vehicle or planetary base or whatever. So each of these disciplines has their has their blind spot. And I, I think of this in, in something that's called, in terms of something that's called the symmetry of ignorance, that everybody knows some things well, but everybody also has areas that they are not well informed. And whether or not they um, recognize that is, is important. So now another uh, source, sort of philosophical source that I have is Maimonides, who was, who was a, a philosopher uh, and, and medical doctor in the 12th century. Um, and uh, in his guide for the perplexed, he presented a model postulates a concept of truth and falsehood as separate and disconnected from the concept of good and evil. And I think this is this is important. And this is this is a little diagram I concocted that kind of shows my interpretation, which is that these are two completely separate axes that really only meet at the zero zero coordinate. Um, tradition, I believe, Tends to tends to adhere to the the horizontal axis of good to evil, which uh, is is really a matter of gray values, uh, where where you're asking is A a little bit better than B? Can I make a little more money with C rather than D? What what'll have the biggest best return on investment? And this axis of thinking on the grayscale of good and evil, I see as a trap in terms of um, innovative design. And what you, what I want to do when I'm trying to design is, is seek what Maimonides called the necessary truth. And I, I think of this as the innovation scale, the vertical axis between truth and false or false assumptions. So I'm going to talk about the suit port, which we heard a little bit from Brand earlier. Um, in terms of the necessary truth that went into the, the design concept for that, or the design inspiration. So I designed, developed, designed the suit port in alliance with the AX5 spacesuit pro project. That was. The Ames Experimental 5 suit, it's an all-hard suit, operates at uh, 8.5 PSI, so it's about double the the 4.2 PSI of the Apollo-era and shuttle-era spacesuits. And this photo shows the AX-5 mounted on its rear-entry donning fixture, and the astronaut uh, 
subject, uh, Phil Culbertson Jr. is evoking the Da Vinci's Vitruvial, Vitruvian man with his arms and legs. And the AX-5, of course, was designed by Vic Vicucal at Ames. It was his fifth, the fifth in the series of AX spacesuits. And it's, it's made from uh, machined high-strength aluminum forgings all of the pieces are and it has a very high safety factor except for the gloves the gloves are are, are the main weak point in the suit in any suit so here's the suit port mated to, to the rear entry port of the ax5 now the original purposes of the um of the uh, suit port were, were these four. First of all, save atmosphere. And, and the, the revelation, the necessary truth, is that there's no was no need to pump down an airlock volume. The, the airlocks, the conventional airlocks, or big dumb airlocks, as we used to call them, were anywhere from 6 to 10 cubic meters of air. That puts it in the range of 200 to 300 cubic feet. And the assumption was that we would pump that down to save the, the atmosphere and conserve it and reuse it. Um, but the revelation of the uh, for the support was that if we if we seal the the suit rear entry to to the bulk to the pressure bulkhead, then all you need to sacrifice is the small interstitial volume between between the uh, suit portable life support system backpack and the the inner hatch so what we're doing is we're saving atmosphere saving crew time minimizing the need to pre-breathe pure oxygen because the ax5 is 8.5 psi suit and save a considerable amount of power necessary to pump down which i calculated at uh, five kilowatt hours so anyway, um, you'll notice that preventing contamination and controlling contamination was not one of the original purposes. That didn't come up until later when we had a had a funded project for the so-called hazmat vehicle. Now here is the longitudinal section through the suit port, and um, it's actually in what what we called an EVA access module. The idea being that um, the whole EVA system needs its own access module. Uh, you, you can't see it here, but there is there is a hatch between the the cabin and, and the airlock volume. <coughs> and so the the suit is is in a uh, an airlock volume which nominally is kept depressurized but can be pressurized for the crew to go in, inspect, or repair the suit. And the funny thing is that somebody somewhere in the in the uh, EVA ecosystem came up with the idea of a suit port, I mean a suit lock, and the suit lock is basically the whole of the original patent. And then they start people started referring to the suit port as just the the suit mounted to the bulkhead without an exterior protection. But anyway, you, you can see the way the, the astronaut would enter and don the suit and 
reverse the process to doff it. Now to protect the glove against failure, the the patent includes what we call a black a a, a back a glove back pressure device, which protects it against um, blowout through the fingers, to hold to hold the cabin pressure. And um, here it is, the way Mike Gernhardt, the astronaut exploration EVA lead, uh, put it in the lunar electric rover, and uh, this participated in the Desert Rats. And it was also the NASA float in President Obama's first inauguration parade in 2009. So. Now I'm going to talk some about tradition. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of, of, of theoretical writing in, in traditional architecture, which, which I've, I read, and I, I don't hear them as just kind of speaking only to art historians, or, you know, which is where most people ever learn about it. I experienced these theorists as speaking directly to me across the centuries and across the millennia. But in contrast, most architecture students receive a very deficient education. They get a very watered down Vitruvius. They basically learn just two mantras, Fermitas, Commoditas, and Venusitas is one. And the other is the mantra that the column is the principal ornament of architecture. But there's so much more, and I'll give you one example. Vitruvius proposed the first definition of privacy. And um, he wrote, the private rooms are those in which nobody has the right to enter without an invitation, such as bedrooms, dining rooms, bathrooms, and all others used for the like purposes. The common are those, meaning the common rooms, are those which any of the people have a perfect right to enter, even without an invitation. That is entrance courts, cavetia, peristyles and all intended for the like purpose. The cavetia is the same as an atrium. It's the, the large central room in a Roman house with an opening to the sky, the uh, impluvium that water can, rainwater can come in and collect in the pond underneath called the impluvium. And here's an example of the first private sleep compartments in space the from Skylab, where the, there are three sleep compartments for each of the three Skylab crew, and they're all different shapes to give them some individuality. And here's the Skylab 2 uh, logo with uh, a Vitruvian man. So now, I'll give an example uh, from Palladio. Um, in his three, in his four books on architecture, he offers three formula to calculate the ceiling height of a room based upon its proportions and, of, of the, and size of the floor area. So I, I applied I, Palladio's methods, this formula when I was needed to calculate the height of the ceiling for the space station proximity operations simulator, uh, which, which really basically meant how high from the top of a fiberglass cylinder we were going to place the floor. And I did that, and, and it seemed to work out quite well. 
Now, I'm going to talk about the cupola on the space station. Um, on the in the upper left, you see the Duomo in Firenze, the, the the big cathedral dome in Florence, and there things that uh, attracted my attention were first of all the radial rondel windows around the base of the dome of, of Brunelleschi's dome, but also the cupola on top. And I had the idea that for what was, we then called Space Station Freedom before it became called the International Space Station, that we could attach a uh, skylight or rather a, a cupola port, a cupola onto a, a, a radial docking port or any other docking port. <clears throat> and um, we managed to get that into the into the space station configuration. Here you see a, a cupola in in what was called the RUR2 configuration from 1985. And then here you see the actual um, cupola attached to attached to a, a module on the space station. So um, here the necessary truth was where you put a cupola, considering the fact that, that these modules had very limited um, possibilities for attaching a, a, a completely new penetration. And so the idea was to convert a, convert a docking port into a uh, a mount for the cupola. So I actually have a conclusion. It, it's kind of it's kind of wordy and convoluted. I'm afraid. This basically presents my understanding of innovation and tradition and how they interact in space architecture. And unless one knows and comprehends the design precedents and the traditions they embody in the history. Uh, you cannot anticipate or comprehend what constitutes a true innovation or if, if such an innovation is needed. And then um, space architecture is, is all about living and working and surviving in space. It's the study and theory and practice of design for space living, et cetera. These, these Environments support crews, bases, settlements, towns, and cities in orbital microgravity and in partial gravity. Now, new space architects tend to assume that because they are entering a new field, that whatever they do must, as if by default, be new or innovative. But this is kind of a fallacy. And, and it, it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with knowing what is the necessary truth. Um, because you... I don't think it's possible to to approach a design problem with the assumption that I've got to do something completely new, um, because that that biases you from understanding what the real requirements are. So unless you know thoroughly the precedents and the tradition, and we are developing our own traditions within space architecture now, to which Brand spoke, how, however much I, I disagree with what, some of the things he said. One cannot know what innovation is or what it needs to become. So, the end. Whoa.
actually, actually, um, I've, I've, I've read them in, in English, but also, um, the best, the best version of Vitruvius is actually one in French that was published in, I think, 1680, which is cr all cross-referenced. Um, it's, it's actually, it's actually the best translation of, of Vitruvius for those who aren't fluent in, fluent in Latin. Um, but yeah, uh, there, 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 there is a, uh, translations of all those into English. I think uh, Sandra mentioned Palladio, not the... Uh, yeah, not Palladio, Vitruvius, Curlio, uh, et cetera. Alberti. We have another question by Steve Sturck. Uh, Mark, everyone, do you have any parametric cost model uh, by KG? KG? I don't know what this means. That you recommend for the space architecture lunar community, like what is the cost for this field? Um, <clears throat> for the AX five, um, well, um, the the AX five would have cost about a, a million dollars a copy in uh, like 1987 that doesn't include the portable life support system. Mark, we, we still need to write a paper on that about the evolution and the politics involved in uh, uh, the creation and the disappearance of the AX series, right? Um, well, you, you start writing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it always starts. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, or shall we move to uh, um, the panel, the incredible panel? Uh, is that- uh, Wait, Madhu, we have one more speaker before what? the panel. Sorry. That's Maria, but please, can I have one more question? Because sure. Mark surprised me today uh, with his privacy comment. Because what you said, what uh, Vitruvius said about privacy is almost the same definition that is provided for privacy from, psycho from scientists in psychology. You know that uh, privacy where you intruders are not, uh, or the private space is the space where people are not allowed to enter. This is almost the exact definition of uh, environmental psychology. Right, well, uh, I, I don't know if I can take credit for that, but you know, back before most of the people online were born, I was promoting the Vitruvius definition to environmental psychologists, and uh, uh, including Jim Weiss and Yvonne Clearwater and some others. And uh, they, they, they liked that definition. And so I, I think maybe that's where they adapted it from. I, I think I first published it in like 1984 with the 
seminar on space station human productivity at Ames, and you know. Okay, that, that, that's super interesting. I think I read it. Gifford was this environmental psychologist, but uh, maybe that means it's the truth, right? When maybe. you have definition for so long. And, and Sandra, am I right to think that that privacy and the envelope is very different for different cultures and different peoples around the world? Um, how do we fit that envelope into an astronaut uh, astronaut category? But, but I think that's the point what Mark just explained. His definition is all is universal. It's not cultural dependent because he explains the definition where intruders may not come without an invitation. He doesn't say how large, you know, nothing about dimensions, nothing's about time. Interesting. It's just a, it's a very universal definition. That's interesting. Yeah. Of course, the. Design for such a privacy looks different. Yeah. Okay, any, who's next, Sandra? Uh, next is Maria. Oh, Maria. Marino, we invited her to talk before our panel. Okay, now may I introduce Maria? Please. Oh, Please, Maria. And now, um, long ago, I'm not going to say exactly when, I know Brand is laughing over there. And we were all at the inaugural uh, session of a program at MIT. And uh, Maria was kind of the head honcho there. I don't know how she wrangled it, but everybody, when they had a problem, would want to go to Maria. I really don't know if she knew anything, but, but it was all, uh, all uh, directed at Maria. And, uh, and then uh, I realized that um, <laughs> she was a nuclear engineer at the time, and uh, uh, she went on to uh, head up uh, several uh, divisions at Alenia, and, um, and she promotes space and space activity like very few people I know. And, uh, and somehow Maria avoided the agencies and went into the industry from where uh, she is going to provide us uh, some words of wisdom. I hope, Maria, it's so nice to see you. Uh, it's very late in Torino, and you have yes. background, but I'm uh, so glad you're here. Uh, please uh, tell us um, what you think, and maybe a few words about yourself first. Yeah. What can I add to what you just said? Uh, I, I, I am you know, more than pleased to to be among so many <clears throat> long-time friends, including you, Barbara, Brand, uh, Sandra, uh, Olga, uh, many of you guys. Oh, did we, did we lose your contact or are you still there? Yeah, it's, it's frozen. Maybe we waited a bit. Uh, anyhow, when she comes on, uh, we, could, uh, we could do the panel, I hope. But uh, she has wonderful uh, insights uh, looking from uh, the industry viewpoint that uh, uh, that we'd love to have uh, her speak to. Um, 
um, while uh, she is still figuring out uh, any other questions before we move to panel. Oh, good. Okay, who, who is joining us? Uh, Scott and uh, um, Brand? Uh, you know, if we need to be formal, I, I think we are. Hello, Madhu, I'm oh. back. Okay, oh, wonderful. Sorry. Okay, Maria, sorry, please, sorry. please go ahead. I, I, I don't want to take too much time because we are well behind the, 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 the time allocated to the first session. Uh, just wanted to maybe share with you uh, the industry point of view. Um, I've been working in Thales Selenia space for 37 years now, and uh, uh, I don't uh, just said I saw, uh, I, I, I participated to the development of, how can I call it, the first really inhabited uh, large infrastructure that we are lucky to have in orbit uh, uh, around uh, our planet. Uh, and uh, I love to, to hear uh, the way Mark uh, uh, recall uh, the importance, for example, of Cupola. Uh, we in Torino, eh, we are the designer and the producer, the manufacturer eh, of, of Cupola. Um, so I, I have a presentation, but I don't manage to share it with you guys, but it doesn't matter. The point that I wanted to make with you is the following. Um, every single word that was spoken tonight is important. You know, the, the, the uh, totally open-mindedness that comes from the students uh, that have a completely unbiased view. I adore listening to Alma. Uh, I adore listening to the presentation by Sandra and Paolo uh, reporting about uh, so many different uh, student projects. Uh, but I also uh, um, thought that was proper for Brand and, and Mark uh, to point out that uh, one thing is to imagine, one thing is to be creative, uh, uh, to develop new concepts, uh, Another thing is to put them into reality. As Melody properly said at the beginning, when she explained, uh, how can I say, when she showed, in fact, uh, the different uh, um, results, uh, uh, the initial architectural layout and the final, not rendering, the final real, um, uh, how can I say, outcomes. And the same is true for industry. Uh, the good news that I want to share with all of you is that uh, we take into account uh, all the philosophical, let me call it, philosophical and cultural approach that Mark just uh, um, pointed out before. Uh, so we position the uh, human needs in the center of uh, every design activity that we carry on. Sandra, in fact, came to Torino when she was finishing up with her university degree. Sandra came for her thesis uh, to see uh, how the modules uh, were, in fact, designed and, and, and realized in practice. Um, and so uh, men is our men with men, human, uh, men and women. 
needs are at the core of our design activities, but then we have to cope with uh, the constraints that come from uh, the launchers, that come from uh, the money available, and so on. Uh, well, um, we are currently welding the new modules for the lunar infrastructure that will orbit the moon in a few years from now. We are welding, not designing, welding uh, uh, the modules uh, that uh, will be part of the new commercial infrastructure around our planets. We are designing the lander and uh, even a pressurized rover, uh, ALMA, uh, uh, not, uh, not so similar to the one that you show, that would be like a Ferrari. Eh? Um, we are currently designing, how can I say, a Fiat 500. You are not Italian, but uh, it's just to, uh, how can I say, compare eh? the dream with the reality. Uh, but we are moving uh, in, in, in the real world and uh, we, we do our best to contribute uh, with the infrastructures uh, that in the near term will be uh, part of our, how can I say, uh, travel eh, toward the moon and Mars. And I thank you for uh, allowing me to share with you eh, an industrial viewpoint. If you have any questions, I'm happy to, to, to let you know, for example, that as much as I would like to have huge volumes available, you know, to accommodate beautiful internal uh, architectural layout. Uh, for example, for the Gateway, we have to stay with uh, cylindrical modules, three meters diameters. Um, so there are constraints uh, that, uh, uh, for the time being, uh, uh, limit a little bit. Uh, uh, what we can do, but still, uh, the, the technology is making uh, enormous progresses. Uh, we can use virtual system for sure, 3D printing, as Melody said before, is not just good for uh, terrestrial analogs, but it's also good in space. And so, technology is, uh, is helping us a lot. Uh, Sandra, I think if you want everybody to take picture, uh, we you need uh, like Barbara and Sam, everybody to turn on the screen. And, uh, my yes, wonderful. Okay, let's go over there. Uh, and Brad. Uh, uh, but you you look great on the panel over there. Please stay there. Brian Scott, Madhu, it looks great if you stay there. Okay, so you, you remain the seat and then take a screenshot. Uh, all the others, okay, I, I, I cannot take a, a screenshot from all. Can you do that? I think we want to be all together. With That's the right. Yeah. Yeah. Good idea. Let's move Barbara. That's right. Person and Sam, uh, Sam, if you're here, please turn on your camera. And the Claire too. All of you. All of you. Uh, let's see. Okay, let's write. Please turn on your camera. Right. Let me. One second. I think what happened is 
they only allow certain people on, uh, on the spotlight. So let me try to do this pin using the pin instead. Let's you see. can use my camera too, yeah. I understand, but it's it's not a, it's it's a background. Okay. Uh, because they they seem to be limiting people. How many people can be? But but do we see all participants? I think I only see the. That that that's the issue. That's the issue. Ah. Will it help people there? No, it's not. The well, Bernard's approach usually oh, asks okay. everybody who is in come to the screen and he takes pictures of the screen with people standing in front. Okay, so be patient because uh, okay. we have two screens here. So we will just have some people on one screen and one on the other. Uh, so we have uh, this, uh, already there. So let's do remove this. Uh, then we have Atario is not there, so we add him in. Uh, so who else? Alma is there. Sam, Sam doesn't turn on, doesn't turn on his uh, camera. Sam, where are you? Oh, I see what you're doing. Yeah. We, we, we had a nice Pretty shot certain number of with 200 times from Paolo. <laughs> you want to put that one on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, so I think we have, just don't, uh, we are missing Sam. Sam, okay. Not Samir, uh, is Sam. Sam is uh, talking to me. I, I'm, I'm here. I think I'm. Uh, the camera is on, right? Okay. One second. You are. Not Samir. Sa Sam Jimenez. Oh. We have. Yeah, Sam uh, Jimenez. Who sends? It's uh, Jimenez. He, 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 he hasn't turned on his camera yet. Uh, yeah, probably he is not available. All right, so we just uh, ignore him now by passing a picture. Four of them. Yeah, they are four. And where is Brent and Scott? Okay. <laughs> Guys, forget her. If we need more, we'll have pictures, $5 per shot. No, 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 she's a speaker, right? No, we need a picture. Where's Brent and Scott? Where is our panel? Yeah, yeah, uh, Brent left. Brent left an hour ago, I believe. No, I saw him just a few minutes ago. Okay. We're not online. We're here in reality. Yeah, in person. Uh, yes, but where are you? You you look so great on the panel. The panel is empty now. I, I see. I see. I see what he what he was saying. And Ken, you ah here. Yes, Ken, you also need to be on the picture. I'm okay, I'm okay. You have been such an important person. You have to be in front. Don't no worry, don't no worry. That looks great. Next time we come to LA, okay? That's right, we need you here. <laughs> Wonderful. So, can you, you, need to, you need to go... Okay, to after, after this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. One more, one more, one more. <laughs> okay, take, take one more for me. I want to go there. Ken is going to come. Yeah. And the right on that side. Right over here. Okay. Wonderful.
dig one more back there. Let me dig one there. Okay. Or Jeremy. Yeah, this one's better. All right. All right, I think we got it. Yeah, Great, thank you, Mike. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. And guess what? We are only halfway through the event. <laughs> <laughs> that was good that they took a picture of me. Well, this is in case uh, it's very late for some of them. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, so we agree. Remember, I know. Yeah. take a group of people. Thanks for reminding me. Because at the end, some, some... Thanks for reminding, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know what this is. I don't even know. Okay, guys, it's time for. Uh, for a panel, so the panel is for session one. For session one, okay. So for the session two and three, we'll temporarily uh, turn off your camera. Oh, all right, good. Okay, uh, so go for it. Uh, you know, I found uh, Sandra, it's your, your turn. I keep taking the mic, but it's your turn. Go for it. Uh, one second. Uh, for folks here, uh, since this is lunch time here, we don't have time for uh, lunch break, so some folks might have gone out to grab their lunch. And once again, we have bottled water, coffee, tea in the kitchen. Uh, so we all can do benefit from it. Uh, so in, in case you want to walk over to 32nd, of course, street, there's a corner burger. Uh, uh, you have uh, American food. So enjoy. Thank you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sandra, go ahead. Uh, shall I go ahead? Yes. Yes, please. Okay. Um, I think we have to limit the discussion a little bit, but what I find pressing as a theme now that we, it was not planned, but this, this relation between innovative designs and reality. Maybe we could have a discussion on how we can ensure that what we think as professionals, experts, based architects, designers think is relevant for habitation, how can we make sure to that it will be built that way? Because so far, I mean, with Brent, I wrote the paper so far, and also at Thales Alenia, you worked 15 years on this habitation module, at least, with I don't know how many man hours, and it was discarded, and all these things get discarded. But how can you make sure that we have a sustainable space development and important things are not discarded? And Melody, you know, she had this wonderful honors presentation. That is, I think, a, a very big issue that also Mark probably can sing a few songs about. I don't know, Sandra, if you ask the question to me or to anybody. Uh, uh, I, I can uh, maybe start by answering that uh, um, we are used to work a lot uh, side by side with uh, astronauts. So we collect uh, uh, first-hand uh, um, feedbacks uh, from, how can I say, the real uh, experience in space of, uh, of what we have designed and, and realized so far. And so, for example, we were talking about Cupola before. Uh, we collected uh, uh, many years ago, uh, I remember myself, uh, a feedback from, from a cosmonaut 
Polyakov, medical doctor, uh, who told us that uh, um, what he really missed uh, was the possibility to, how can I say, have a look outside without feeling like uh, uh, being in a confined uh, uh, environment, a sort of can. Uh, and so the idea of, of cupola uh, started to develop. Um, some other astronauts uh, underlined the importance of the crew quarters, as one mentioned before. And, and uh, as we all know, uh, in any uh, current design, uh, uh, crew quarters are a, a central part uh, of the internal layout. Uh, but also uh, the social uh, zone is as much important as, as the private one. And so it's a balance. Uh, we need to look for proper compromises, uh, how to best use uh, the little volume that uh, is available. And as I said before, technology is a big help uh, because uh, the possibility to use advanced materials um, expendable materials, the possibility to uh, reconfigure uh, the volume uh, to allow for, how can I say, a minimum creativity eh, of the astronauts themselves is very important. Yeah, let me add to what Maria was saying that uh, early on, uh, even before you know, ISS, and Mark referred to some of that. Working with Boeing, that was some of the things that I did. We built full-scale mock-ups, and then we brought on the crew at that time that had the longest space experience. Bill Pogue, Jerry Carr, they were our consultants. And we tend, in many ways, to think that all astronauts are equal. They're not. You know, uh, and in fact, I think you need to be careful about what advice you get from what astronauts and how much time they've spent on space. Um, past that into the early development ISS, uh, I was the habitation module manager, and we built that up, and uh, we had a full-scale mock-up, and in fact, uh, built the pressure vessel, and it's in <laughs> Huntsville right now. It hasn't flown. We have not flown a habitat since. What we've done is we've kind of squeezed crew into laboratories. And I don't think we've done a very good job there. So as space architects, uh, you know, addressing your question, Sandra, I think we really need to look at space habitability. And in terms of maybe a dedicated module that does that function, and we haven't had that. Okay, let me, let me add to this. Uh, I think all of you, all of you space architects, uh, both uh, practicing and uh, uh, aspiring, uh, you may know that um, humans in the loop um, cause a lot of rethinking in design. And uh, this goes back to our early capsules and where uh, uh, the, the designers uh, were hardcore engineers uh, who did not want uh, to have their uh, thermal or uh, life support being messed up by people. And uh, uh, one thing 
led to another, uh, to the point that uh, uh, the astronauts told them very clearly they were test pilots in reality. And they needed to see where they were going because they did not want windows. And uh, uh, there are instances like that. It could be lost there are many instances like that. And uh, so when crew are involved, I think qualitative aspects are, are tantamount to, to um, good design. Uh, Mark may have things to say. The comment is that's that's the concept of human-centered design. Right? I think right. it's really important, well, critical for designing a habitat that humans will be in. That's right. Human-centered design is another way to put it. Talk so, about it. Uh, appreciate uh, the panelists, team members here. A lot of great insight. Um, so one of the one of the really amazing uh, products that we are experiencing in Space Force some of us as young professionals, is we really are looking now at the digitization of the service, uh, digitizing the models, the systems, the platforms. And it's almost being done like at a kind of, a, we're being taken to school. And the best analysis that I can use, I had an opportunity to spend time with Aston Martin Racing at Formula One in, in Monaco. One thing that was really amazing that I noticed that they digitized all the model of their systems before they even built any structure. They actually do it in a digital ecosystem and they have teams that focus on thermal engineering, teams that focus on human factors on the race car driver, teams that focus on aerodynamics, teams that focus on communication, and what was really cool is that they could model these systems in a kind of simulated environment and test them before they even pushed them out on a, on a laboratory. So I'm wondering, have you folks experienced any of that digitization or are you seeing that as an emerging kind of philosophy with some practical application in, in your in your career, your, your spheres? Over. Yeah. Um... I'll, I'll take that at first, but I, probably Melody might have some something on, uh, on her experience as well. Um, I was involved in the uh, HDU, which is the, the current HERA project, and we uh, created a digital double for the HERA uh, analog. And uh, this is back when we took it out to the desert. We had uh, a, a fully developed CAD model for that. And it was uh, linked back to all of the uh, functions in the habitat, such that uh, you could um, essentially, um, it was possible in some cases to uh, put on a, a set of virtual reality glasses, go inside and turn off lights and, and such like that. Um, the, uh, currently, the uh, technology allows, there's a, uh, Melody mentioned the, the the BIM model, I think you can probably talk about that later a little bit, but uh, the, currently we have very rich CAD models and they're also uh, uh, in uh, engineering based modeling for that's uh, uses SysML and things like that. So, yes. so we're slowly getting towards uh, a, a uh, bringing all the models together such that uh, the eventual goal will of course to, to be able to build the model, the model will be completely functional 
similar to how the actual uh, uh, artifact will be, and then you can actually control the artifact control the hardware using that rich model. But we're not there yet. It's, it's slowly getting there. Is that a good answer? Yes. Uh, what are some of the limiting factors that are you know slowing saying? you down, would you say? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's very complex. Like, for instance, uh, um, I, I work a lot with the, uh, the both the CAD side and the SysML side. OK. And, uh, and trying to link the two is, is uh, very difficult, and uh, it, it'll take, uh, you know, a lot of little uh, applications piled up on each other until we actually get to the point where that's possible. Uh, you know, bringing uh, what what I there's several other like SysML type uh, applications that are, are working really well. For instance, uh, National Instruments has a way of diagram or uh, uh, MATLAB simulate. So there's a, there's a bunch of similar ones that are that have their strengths and stuff like that. The National Instruments version, you actually uh, get on and uh, control motors and things like that. Um, Simulink has its own strengths and weaknesses. And uh, for uh, the SysML, we're using uh, Magic Draw, um, Cameo, um, but uh, eventually all those strengths are going to coalesce into some kind of uh, integrated model that will allow you to uh, run the manufacturing of the parts and then uh, which goes all the way through it's so rich that you can manufacture all the parts off of that model and then later on of course control the model as well but uh we're not quite there yet thank you no. uh, you would like to Sure. I, can, I can jump in. Um, I completely agree with Scott. We're not quite there yet. Uh, the truth is that digital twins are <laughs> extremely valuable and extremely, um, let's say, uh, interesting from a research perspective for a very long time. But creating a feedback loop between as-built structures, both buildings in construction as well as spacecraft is very, very difficult. So digital twins, building information models, um, extremely valuable when you're still working in like a software-based space and not necessarily leading towards, uh, and not necessarily uh, working with as-built structures as they're operational. So, uh, but then as soon as the thing is built, uh, yeah, the feedback loop is is the tricky thing. Uh, so yeah, in the design space, I would say that makes total sense to be working digitally, to be developing simulations and doing those kinds of systems engineering tasks uh, within that within that digital twin. And then you can use that, or at least the way that we're approaching uh, our work right now in construction is to use that model for procurement and, uh, and other matters having to do with fabrication and manufacturing, which of course is, is the best way to get accurate information uh, relative to pricing, costing, and then like your manufacturing needs. But then 
once the thing is built, how are you actually tracking metrics relative to what was put together and what, what was actually done? And how can you use that to generate data that would inform changes in the future? Uh, I think it's a really, really relevant question, both to terrestrial architecture, but also to spacecraft and vehicle design too. Okay. Well, yeah, I can uh, add. So I see Vittorio also uh, raise his hand because he is the one who is running now uh, virtual reality and mixed reality lab and uh, building it uh, right now, I've finished building it at Sixa. Uh, the major thing, of course, the difference is gravity gradient. And that's uh, the major thing that none of uh, analogs on Earth uh, can replicate. And perhaps uh, digital involving virtual reality and especially mixed reality capabilities uh, brings us as close as possible to, uh, to do that. Still, we, we just want to trick our brains as much as possible when we recreate these conditions. Um, I think the major thing is, uh, of course, with uh, virtual reality is bringing it, make it interactive and uh, connecting it as physical um, uh, objects and subjects as much as possible so we can test operational procedures as well. So that's um, uh, something next step and that's what we're trying to achieve. I don't know, Victoria, you want to add something? Can you hear me? Yes. So I think that about uh, I wanted to go back a, a bit of what like um, Melody said about uh, the digital twin. And I think there is a, it's an incredible tool, yes, uh, also for space architecture. And I think there is a very interesting concept that I read uh, one time uh, that was involving this idea of the uh, digital twin for uh, space applications. That at a certain level, uh, because what we do is basically uh, in the industry for zero, we use digital twins and with the uh, sensors that are embedded in the real building. So the digital twin will uh, also um, act like, uh, uh, in, in the case of the uh, like uh, industry, for example, it will, uh, like the production line will be exact, will act exactly uh, as the real one, because it's like getting real-time data uh, from the production line. So the, the, the digital model will behave exactly like the real model. Uh, in space application, and uh, this is very helpful because in the industry, uh, we learned that uh, this is a tool to make extremely um, powerful and, and very um, like adherent to the reality uh, provisional, uh, pr uh, um, provisional models uh, in which we can uh, uh, forecast what will happen uh, because we have so much data that are embedded in the model uh, and this data they come from real sensor uh, that every single part of information that's come from the sensor that it's embedded in the digital model contribute to create uh, an engineering model uh, that um, help us understanding, for example, things like uh, uh, the failure points or like uh, the life of, of a certain component. Um, so at, uh, I was reading about this concept that was basically uh, saying that at a certain level, uh, through like advancements in machine learning and deep learning, we will be able to overcome
the um, the delay, the time delay between uh, our buildings on Mars and the ones on Earth, because the uh, with time the, the the sensors would build an extremely accurate uh, provisional model, uh, provisional model of what will happen in those buildings. Um, and I think like that's now, especially the last developments uh, that we. Um, that we are experiencing with uh, machine learning and deep learning algorithms. I, I don't want to call them AI because it's not AI uh, in a certain way. Um, I think that like can um, like like can have the the digital twin as a concept, making like a, this next step um, over like what we are using it. Uh, just right now, so like to implement completely new capabilities um, that will be like that we still still uh, can't foresee. And, and I mean, I, I know that was not very clear, probably, but um... Um, yes, I think that's very interesting. I have one additional remark about the procedures and decision making. Um, I assume decision-making on space habitat design has not been made by architects, but by managers, right? I'm, I'm asking also Melody, who is making, when you, you showed us the design, you were the architect, but somebody has decided to do something else. And that was probably not an architect. No, no, it certainly was not an architect. Uh, I can speak to, I can only speak to my own experience relative to the AAA analog, right? Um, it, it was fully outside of the scope of the, of the program to maintain a consistent vision between exterior and interior. In fact, some of the requirements relative to the interior programming and the actual, like even the hardware that the that the crew members would be using and how the space would be, interior space would be functioning was largely undeveloped. So we kept asking for requirements. What's happening here? What are the crew members going to be doing? What is their schedule? And none of it was being shared. There was a lack of information provided, right? So. We could only do as much as we could with the requirements that were given. And then beyond that, there was a clear division of scope within our contract. Um, and despite, and I'll, I'll say this, like despite even willing to do work in kind, provide furniture in kind, create uh, millwork that would, that would all be in kind, there was so much resistance to uh, to, to aligning on a vision, which there was not much um, consensus around because it felt decorative to certain uh, program managers and it felt non-essential to other program managers. And it was very difficult to maintain an argument for why a coherent vision of architectural interiors might be of benefit. Um, I advocated for that avidly. I don't think there would be lazy boys on Mars. And I'm sure that people who have thought seriously about this problem 
uh, see that as a missed opportunity. And so, you know, I like I, I personally think that there's in the future, I mentioned this in my presentation, it's not every so often that we have multi-million dollar structures and research analogs of this sort built, but what a missed opportunity to have synthesized input from a variety of disciplines, backgrounds, subject matter experts, both in like anthropology, philosophy, so many disciplines. None of that was taken into, into account. Bottom line, we had a budget to meet and a timeline to deliver on, which we did, but there was so much added value that I, I think we can, we should be thinking about for future projects. Well, Sandra, let me speak a little bit to that. Um, we can't keep on blaming the system. Nothing is going to be perfect in terms of getting, let's say, a habitat to orbit. What, in terms of my retracing the development, initially we were encouraged with the precursors to ISS to have separate habitat module. Since that time, many, many other designs have only been able to separate the habitat functions from the laboratory functions within the same module. That's as good as we can do. But assuming you have a separate module, and uh, I'll go back to some of the, the comments that I saw up there, um, don't discount management from having vision. Yes, some do. Who's on the top of SpaceX? I mean, in there is vision out there and part of our job is maybe to inspire to be you know a manager you know that we can do that and i was i was a half module manager for boeing and somehow they caved into that now i can't say those were the best days of my life but it's terrible sitting in these management meetings and just like you're saying melody it's cost schedule budget it wasn't the solution it was those particular metrics but still, if we want to get it done, we're going to have to do that. And, uh, you know, we can't lose the vision, but there's a process there that's going to be pretty ugly in order to get there. Well, uh, Sandra, uh, Bob Blinkov here is a question. Hi, it was John Blinkov, uh, Gateway Spaceport. Um, we're into space construction. We build the things that you guys design. And I have a question for Brad. Um, you're working for Genesis Engineering, and tools are what we do, space construction tools. You're developing a pod right now, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited about that because that's one of the things that we need. Um, is there a follow-on pod to what you guys are doing that's more tuned towards heavy-duty construction for space? Well, uh, that could be used. Uh, he's referring to uh, a single-person spacecraft uh, at Genesis we're developing. We've put a lot of R&D funds into it. Um, but um, that can be used for construction, either piloted or teleoperated. You know, if some tasks are too hazardous or maybe uh, pyrotechnic that you're not uncertain of, you send that out. Um, and we also have schemed up a two-person spacecraft uh, only because others have kind of said, what about two people? But, uh, you know, a, a single-person spacecraft for the weightless environment is coming. <laughs> it's coming. And uh, you know, we've talked a lot about EVA and, uh, you know, the things associated with it. And I love suits. I've designed a suit. And uh, even with, you know, talking about Mark's comments and 
I uh, flew on the KC-135 doing rear entry, not necessarily a suit port concept, but you know, you maintain the structural integrity of the suit and then you get in and out. The current suit, you have to break it apart, you know, so that's, that's a good solution. But for the weightless environment, uh, these single person spacecrafts are coming. I just would like to see an American flag on them. We need them for construction. Yeah. Um, when it comes to moving heavy loads around, we need something bigger though with a longer fuel duration. And I would, if you guys have work coming down the line for something bigger, especially that two person uh, uh, variation you're talking about, I would love to see more on that. Yeah, they did move two satellites. You know, that was the purpose early on of the man maneuvering unit, you know, to be able to do it. But with our propulsion systems, they're pretty weak. Yeah. Uh, we'd have to find something else in order to do that. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sorry, but I have I got some messages. We have to move on. Uh, Barbara had a comment. Do you want to? I can tie it into my presentation, so I think that would be great. Um, it's a great discussion, but I think we really have to move on. Uh, session two is in Alma's hands. So I say goodbye. From Bye. And welcome, Alma, for the next. Thank will you. you. Will you stay on, Sandra, or is this a good night? No, no, I stay on for a little bit longer and then I will leave quietly. <laughs> Great. Okay, Alma, I think you're taking over the relay here. Yes, I am. Yes. Hello, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Hello, everyone. Welcome to the session two. I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Barbara Imhoff. Um, Dr. Barbara Imhoff is an internationally active space architect and design researcher. She is a co-founder and co-managing director of Liquefire Vienna Bremen. Barbara Imhoff has taught at various renowned universities, such as ETH in Zürich, Kalmers University in Gothenburg, University of Kassel, the Berlin Weissensee School of Art, the University of Applied Arts, and University of Technology in Vienna. Barbara, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks, Alma, for the introduction. I'm going to share my screen now. Mm -hmm. You can hear me well. Yes, we can. We can, uh, we can hear you well, Barbara, and I want to say hello to you as well. Good to see you. Hi, Manu. And hi, everybody else. <laughs> Lots of known faces and people. Um, yeah, I, I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about um, our work, some older and more recent projects. And um, it was great to hear Maria, who sort of paved the way into what I'm going to talk about um, now. I'd also like to actually start uh, with, uh, for, for Liquifer, we are sort of an interdisciplinary team uh, comprising architects, designers, engineers, and scientists. And uh, to us, you know, working in the space industry, which we have been doing for 20 years now, um, the, this kind of this you know, vicinity to the to collaboration with, our, with engineers is quite important because, and now I sort of, make a comment to the to the to the panel because in in reality in space 
it's the roles are a little bit reversed while you know houses uh, on earth uh, not all of the times i have to say but um sometimes or most of the times get sort of planned uh, by an architect or architecture uh, collaboration uh, an office and is in the whole building sort of orchestrated uh, through this view and this lens with the sort of the HVAC engineers contributing to it, the role in your space is reversed because we firstly have to establish this biosphere and there are many other um, really stringent constraints that we need to adhere uh, to. So I think the interesting part is that architects, you know, have a different role and, um, and maybe that is why sometimes uh, one has the feeling that the engineering uh, takes takes over. But in general, the field of space architecture has been evolving and has found um, a larger voice than it had ever before, I have to say. And with this, I start into the first uh, uh, project. Um, it is uh, sort of the gateway project uh, we are involved in, particularly in the IHAB, um, the International Habitat Module, which is one of the core modules. Um, Gateway, um, as you know, will be sort of a very small international space station comprising participation of NASA, ESA, JAXA, and the Canadian Space Agency, and possibly other partners. And um, while you might think, oh, it's just a small ISS somewhere around the moon, one has to consider that it's a thousand times further away from the ISS. And uh, therefore, it is really a more extreme and harsh environment. And it's a very difficult place uh, to build. That's also what we are seeing now in our collaboration with Palisalina Space in Turin, where Maria Antonetta comes from. So the habitat module, now this is an older version, which I can share with you, uh, which we did for Airbus and with Palisalenia space. Um, so you see it's an all-in-one module. It's, uh, this version has four, uh, nearly four meters diameter. The current version, as Maria mentioned, has only three meters diameter. So it houses four crew members up to a mission duration of one month. And so one module, has to incorporate all different systems from private crew quarters, social gathering, um, and um, science equipment, uh, but also other um, equipment. Um, this is part of the food warmer and water dispenser for the for the galley. Uh, and of course, um, to think about the uh, the trash. Here is the sort of the gathering, the table. Uh, previously, we had an exercise device that has uh, gone, but there will be still four uh, crew quarters, which are important to sort of describe uh, or have, you know, provide a private sphere uh, for the crew members. Um, the, the toilet also now in this version, the latest version has moved to another module due to uh, spatial constraints. There will be some small um, um, science equipments, um, but a um, little bit you know, less than it is 
are seen here. What can be seen and what is true for a space module is that the systems, the ECLIS, um, which has actually to be doubled as a backup, takes quite a lot of space. So mm, you can see that there is spatial limitation and we as architects, we are using a design approaches and methodologies lying in transformability, deployability to create different uh, uses of space and to allow also to stow away functionalities which are not needed the whole time by the two quarters are also um, deployable. So how to approach, I think somebody mentioned it um, earlier, how to approach um, a, um, a design that is through models and mockups. So this was the first mockup built by Airbus, um, which was sort of a very um, simple, I would say, demonstrator where one could see uh, what the spatial, you know, how the overall sizes, the spatial orientation and the sort of the configuration, everything was modular and could be, could be exchanged. So the next step when we started to work for uh, Thales Alenia space was to, um, to see, to sort of create demonstrators for um, specific parts for, for example, you see here Alexander Gerst, this is from his um, private uh, public uh, Flickr account, I would say, uh, private photo or ESA photo. Um, and you see here, when you look at, um, so this was the old configuration, the overall module, and then the new configuration, you already see that here um, on that ring, on that silver ring, that this is sort of represents the small size um, of the actual module. So you have to, it's half of it more or less. So you have to imagine um, how much smaller it got from, from the first phase, A, B, concept phase, so now the, the implementation phase that has to do with our launch and transport capabilities. And so these mockups, one you can see, you, know, you can see if uh, again, you know, how the is the, the volumetric, the volumes, how um, is it um, usable, um, what needs to be changed, you know, the, the, the simple things. And currently we are preparing um, a mockup uh, for the critical design review, which will be sort of even more next phase, next step of realism. This is the, the so-called space mockup. It also incorporates other demonstrators, um, which can be used for other, or which are sort of um, products for other uh, uses. Gateway is to really provide access to the lunar surface and in the our future, we do imagine living on the moon or having a larger moon village. So the, the Regolite project um, is from a couple of years back and it had the premise of using a solar array that could be constant or solar rays that could be concentrated onto um, a bed of uh, lunar regolith and um, three-dimensional elements could be sintered to protect uh, the habitats, the pressure volume uh, from micrometeoroids and um, from radiation, which is actually also a great challenge on, on, 
on the gateway, but it's also a challenge on the moon for especially for longer stays. So we created three setups. This is just um, just showing one, which basically shows um, how this sintering process works. Um, sort of there is um, a solar ray, or this is sort of a simulant of a lunar light, xenon lights. It's a laboratory setup uh, is being um, sort of projected um, through a mirror onto a movable table. It could also be uh, through a Fresnel lens with with real solar rays, and um, and then layer by layer is sintered into elements. More recently, um, last year, we finished another um, multi-year study uh, on, um, on taking that further, but looking not only at three-dimensional interlocking elements, but also at, um, at two and a half D elements for paving um, the sort of more paving elements. And what you can also see here that the sintering that the um, sort of the, it's done with a laser spot, which sort of simulates the, the sunlight, the concentrated sunlight. It's a five centimeter laser spot. And it's going a little bit further than just sintering. It's actually melting, but we could achieve uh, quite large uh, forms. So one of these forms is approximately 40 centimeters. So that's like two uh, hand spans basically uh, in width and is sort of two to three centimeters thick. That's, um, I would say, two thumbs thumb thick um, if you're not new to the metric system. So uh, that could be also um, a technology which could be explored further. All these technologies are currently at a readiness level of five or six. So there needs to be a lot of tuning to um, be really ready for a lunar, um, a lunar base. Interestingly enough, you know, this sintering technology um, has been around since the early 1990s, and it can also be probably used on Earth. This is um, a part uh, of a, this, this photo is taken from an island in Honga Tonga in the South Pacific, uh, there, which I took the photo when I was part of the um, artist uh, expedition, actually. And this is also a special island. It does not exist anymore. It's, it sunk two years ago, again, after it had emerged three years previously in 2015. But NASA took interest of that because it was sort of a new island, a new piece of land, and they studied um, how you know how life can evolve, and also wanted to overlay that with probably you know extraterrestrial uh, surfaces. I show this because we did a very, um, I would say, crude but um, interesting experiment to use a Fresnel lens to um, to simulate solar sintering. I would say with you know the, the, the sand which was um, which was at at the location, but that probably um, I would say is a promising start into maybe a technology that could be also used for terrestrial applications. The same is true for the Eden ISS greenhouse, which now after four years in Antarctica next to the Normai station returns home, first to the German Aerospace Center, um, 
um, payment and then further to the lunar facility at the ESA Astronaut Center in Cologne. And as many projects, this project uh, was also a multi-partner um, project um, with 14 partners under the lead of the German Aerospace Center. And you see here um, the gardener Paul Zabel from the DLR harvesting was a special project because, or a special plant growth um, area because it used aeroponics. So the, the roots are sort of in the air. You don't need soil. You don't need a lot of water. You just need to spray uh, the roots and you can get, you can harvest on a 10 square meter area up to 270 kilos uh, of vegetables. That is without the bio biomass you don't eat. Uh, within uh, nine months, so the, the overwintering period um, for the normal station was the food was uh, supplemented by during the overwintering seasons in, in 2018 was supplemented with a lot of fresh food, which really contributed to the to the mood and the spirit of the crew. That is another part of technology, which is, I would say, of dual use uh, to further develop for space and probably also for Earth. Yeah. It, here, um, we have talked about supports a lot. Um, and um, this is uh, the Moonwalk project. And um, it was about human-robot collaboration and to study how we can explore um, unknown terrain uh, with a small helper rover and to compare uh, how it is different to two, um, two humans exploring together. But, um, and you can see here also that we used our she habitat, our self-deployed habitat for extreme environments um, for the transmission control in Mars. Mars was Rio Tinto in the south of Spain and ESA established analog. And um, what you also see, I just want to point out that simulation suit port. Um, so the suit you see has a backpack that uh, opens, so you can sort of backwards talk to these uh, two open doors. And then you really need to sort of um, be quite strong with your arms because then after the suit port or the backpack is open, you have to lift yourself up and backwards into the um, in, into the habitat. And while this is, of course, a very um, simple way of, of simulation, you know, when the, when the backpack, even if the, back, when the backpack is a little bit bigger, you have to somehow lift yourself backwards into the habitat. It can be done. It's not that difficult, but uh, it has to be trained. And here is sort of the human-human collaboration and the comparison. This project sort of goes a little bit further. It was um, also about 3D printing uh, using um, um, lava, so molten regolith, uh, filled into molds and sort of slowly built up into uh, these um, shapes. Um, it was a um, from the Astronaut Center in Cologne, a suggestion from, um, who also worked very closely with the German Aerospace Center uh, next to it. So it was, a, so the technology was a suggestion um, from 
from the engineers working there. And um, going to Mars is really um, a very challenging endeavor. And I'd just like to point out that we will succeed in doing that you know, when we have, of course, sufficient uh, transportation and we have mastered the radiation problem between sort of um, Earth and Mars. But also, and that is an interesting problem that has been demonstrated, the, the advances here in our first session, for example, by Melody, we will need automated construction, but we also need sort of, you know, because it will be all directed, even for the moon from, from Earth, we will not go there and build ourselves. So we also need an interaction between uh, smart systems that, you know, different rovers, different machines that can be, um, um, that, that can actually um, intelligently construct such a base in a very far away place. Uh, we need um, fully closed loop life support system technologies. Um, one part of course is a greenhouse, but there's also other parts. And because of the sort of the, um, the uh, restricted space, um, we will also need to look at specific um, uh, parameters on how to use this space in an um, economically um, uh, good way. And so maybe um, these um, deployable or transformable or multifunctional structures. And we probably will also advance, need to advance the human performance, maybe also in that sense, um, to look at the pharmacological side and um, to, with regard to uh, radiation protection. And all, all of these uh, sort of five topics and probably many more, they're also quite relevant for our life on Earth. And this is um, the topic of our next workshop, I just briefly want to announce, um, which we will run as part of the School of Disruption with the International Space University, with uh, SEARCH, um, with ESA, with ISU, also Maria Perino will be uh, participating, and the TU Delft. And um, well, if you're interested, uh, please contact new liquor or the school of disruption thank you thank you very much all right um do we have any questions i think we have in q a uh there's a question from steve he says uh, he asks which space agency has the led to build the gateway are they on track for cost and schedule to meet the deadline and is the launch date scheduled for 2025 or 2026 sorry can you um the, the first question um you, you can, can see it part in, of that question. Ah. in q a if you open the q a right there on the bottom you can see the question, so but I is leading, is leading the gateway efforts. And um, the, there has been uh, some uh, delays, but um, it's, I think it's not, um, it's less than usual, I would say. It's, um, 
they will start building it slowly. So the IHAP is um, sort of comes after the, the sort of the main propulsion module, and um, and I don't you know also the different parts they 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 have changed a little bit, um, but it's not. I don't think it's twenty twenty six. It's probably one or two years or later. All right. Okay. Thank you. Do we have questions from the audience in the library? Do I do, Alma? And uh, this yes, is all for our panel. Oh, there, there. Um, uh, Scott Brand, this is a question for all of you as well. Um, um, uh, Barbara, we know that uh, you're an architect. And uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your interactions with both engineers? but specifically with industrial designers, uh, Barbara. There is, if Mark Cohen is listening in too, uh, he may want to address this. There is a distinct uh, educational difference uh, in the industrial design curriculum and uh, the architectural curriculum. And it's my, my biased opinion that engineers it tend to hang around industrial designers more uh, when you get to uh, building or manufacturing uh, uh, components. I'm sure Brand will have, have something to say. Was this a question, Madhu, or is this uh, a comment? I mean, in fact, maybe in the answer, I could clarify the question. I don't know if we can do that, <laughs> but um, that I think my do was looking at what I consider the characteristics that differentiate engineers from industrial designers, from architects, and space architects are even a, a different breed. But regardless, um, I find some engineers to be pretty creative. You know, they don't stay within their discipline that way. And then I find some architects that aren't very good designers, actually. Uh, industrial designers, that's what it's supposed to be. But um, usually it takes a very special industrial designer, I think, to contribute to the space environment. Uh, they tend to be, I think, more on visual products than they do on, let's say, the, the functionality of it. My experience uh, being hired in by an engineer, Gordon Woodcock at Boeing, was uh, you advance ideas because there's not clear direction. And, you know, that's how you progress, uh, is that, you know, you're not going to wait for something that says, okay, here's your work assignment. You just take the initiative, and then if it's wrong, it's wrong. But that helps. You move on. And, uh, you know, in some cases, you need to uh, argue your way into, you know, uh, being able to have that design surface. Other times it's going to get shot down for all the right reasons. And, uh, you know, we put too much ego into what we're doing. I found a pretty safe approach is to develop alternatives within your own design set. Yeah. You know, don't fall in love with one of them but develop those alternatives. It's very healthy. And uh, be able to, you know, move those forward. But, uh, you know, I've, 
I've had great relationships with uh, engineers and being able to do it. Their job, though, is to quantify. Yeah. If you don't quantify it, you're not doing engineering, right? That's right. Okay. Then in terms of architecture, we've got to maintain the vision. And uh, we've got to, it's just, it's like designing a house or anything else. You've got to have that vision up front and uh, maintain that vision. But if, if you find out you can't do it, then back off and come up with some other clever solutions. Now, I don't know if I've answered the question, but that's basically what kind of, but I want, I want Barbara's, Barbara's thoughts on um, an architectural education versus a, an industrial design education. And maybe Scott here will also add to it, but please. Okay, so, so I have to maybe say that I uh, graduated from an art academy in architecture. So, um, so I, at the beginning, um, I was quite, I remember being at Johnson Space Center. I, it was a culture shock, not because it was Texas, but it was uh, sort of a very different design environment. And, um, but um, I, <laughs> I'm not just, sure, you know, Madhu, I don't know if I can say, you know, what the, what the, what the designers do uh, in respect to, to, to the engineers. Maybe, you know, you have a point here, but what, what I, I'd really like to stress is I think that every profession, if it is, you know, um, a lawyer, an accountant, a medical doctor, or an engineer, or, uh, you know, an architect designer, they all, um, they are all creative in their own ways. Some are more than others. And, um, and there's always a potential to, to also keep a vision. So I think that is what we, what we need to, um, to, to keep in mind. And I have been learning a lot from engineers, from the space engineers. Um, and it's, it's sort of vital to learn their language, to understand you know, how they think and um, maybe also find a way to explain or, or common ground, establish common ground where one can design collaboratively and together. I think the, create, the creativity is really in, you know, it can be in any kind of um, um, area, which is really up to the people to sort of also, um, you know, harness that, what they have in them. Yeah, so uh, my experience is slightly different from, say, brands, where uh, I've seen a lot of industrial designers who uh, they get really um, a lot of education into uh, manufacturing and things like that for the product that they're trying to work on. Uh, whereas uh, there's a lot of architects who just like to paint facades and think, do things like that, where they they have no idea what's going on behind the, you know, the structure. They say, well, I'll let the, the engineer do that. The one interesting thing that I've seen since I've been into NASA is uh, that the engineers like to start with requirements. And uh, if they have a list of requirements, then they can start to work on their, on their thing. Whereas uh, architects start with a, a blank white page. And uh, and I think uh, this is this is the kind of philosophy that we had when we were doing the the HDU or the or what is now the Hera, is that we started off uh, with uh, a blank page, and we as we were going along, our philosophy was well we're we're 
building something so that we can derive requirements out of it. And uh, a lot of the things that we did, we had a cycle. It was a, a six-month cycle for subsystems and a one-year cycle for the habitat itself. And uh, as we went along, we, we realized that, well, there's this is not going to work. We're going to have to, um, you know, this what the requirement that's coming out of this is not what, what the requirement is going to need to be for the final thing. And so we ended up uh, doing a lot of changes, but we started, we didn't start with the requirements. We started with the, the blank page and we uh, started to derive those requirements out of that later. But Scott, you know, Scott, I want to stay there. I really want to, to know because I'm, I'm not sure if it's really a blank page because we have always something in, in our mind, you know, what we uh, what and so you know i think we also start with the requirements we just don't you know set it up um, in the same way and or if you do a building you look at the site you have all these kind of you know environmental requirements yes you're right because if you say it's a blank page well is it going to be an airplane is it going to be a fork <laughs> 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 so there, so you're right. There is there is kind of a, a vague set of requirements that are there that you kind of have in the back of your mind. But it, but it's not something that like the engineers need. Like Brand was saying, you have to uh, converge on a number. But but I think architects should take uh, uh, should should feel good about this because uh, you know I was trained under an engineer who told me that the best requirements are written after the design and execution of the mission. And this is true. Yeah. I think there's one other point we never talk about it, but it's aesthetics. That's right. And I think that is, is, is quite different because in that is part of an architecture education. Yeah. And, it, and, uh, and so this is something which doesn't appear too much um, in, in the engineering world. I guess it's not that people are not trying to, you know, they all have their sense of aesthetics, but yeah. but I think there's the the way people, you know, we, we are trained in that, or we also talk about that, or we are lectured in that. That is very different. Absolutely. That's why satellite looks, uh, satellites look ugly. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. We should really proceed uh, uh, forward. Um, Barbara, thank you very much for your uh, lecture. It was really nice um, and interesting. And let me introduce uh, Dr. Olga Banova. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Hello. Uh, Dr. Olga Banova is a research professor at the University of Houston, Houston's Cullen College of Engineering, director of the world's only Master of Science in Space Architecture program and Sasakawa International Center for Space Architecture. Architecture. Olga conducts research and design studies of orbital and surface habitats and settlements, including inflatable structures, special design influences, and requirements for different gravity conditions in space and habitat concepts for extreme environments on Earth. Olga, the floor is yours. Thank you, Alma. Very impressive how you just read it all. Usually some people stumble over this, especially Sasakawa. Okay, <laughs> thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for sticking around for that late. I'm very impressed. So I am, as we proceed, I'm trying to 
make it less and less slides. So I would prefer to have a discussion if it's possible after it's at least some time. So uh, the title of my uh, presentation is Reality Check. And uh, so that's what I thought is really important to see how we can connect with the industry and with the future needs or needs for future space exploration that we have been discussing uh, quite a lot during all these previous presentations. And uh, by the way, continuing um, to the previous discussion and about creativity, I'm 100% agree with Barbara that uh, creativity is not defined by the discipline or by the special uh, um, uh, skills. Creativity comes with all different, in all different ways uh, from different uh, directions. And that's why architecture is a great discipline because uh, ideally it's trans and multidisciplinary pro uh, discipline is, uh, uh, itself. Because we need to think about all the aspects, uh, technical, uh, social, everything that comes from human side, everything that comes from environmental side, everything that comes uh, from engineering and connecting it all in the most efficient uh, and best possible way that will serve the purpose and the purpose is to serve people. So um, that's um, why space architecture in general then even exists, or I think, and why it's needed. Again, as I said, motivation comes uh, from uh, desire to enable the exploration of um, new worlds uh, in most uh, most satisfactory way, I would say. So we don't want to lose lives. Uh, we don't want to damage uh, environment. We want to do it in the most enjoyable way, if you will. Uh, so. It's uh, again, architecture organizes and interprets uh, the creation and the enrichment of built environments. And it's quite broad because whatever we build, it's not only for necessarily human living in it, but as soon as uh, humans will operate it, uh, interact with it, it has to be designed uh, in such a way that it becomes part of overall architecture, either it's uh, in space, in orbit, uh, flying to distant worlds, or on surface of moon or Mars or elsewhere. Uh, the thing is, uh, why uh, space architecture is more probably demanding than terrestrial architecture, let's say. Uh, because uh, we do need to have at least some understanding and knowledge about more things that uh, terrestrial architects uh, do. Uh, need to think about orbital mechanics, uh, what is propulsion is, and uh, how much uh, uh, of that has to be part of our overall architecture. If we're talking about um, spacecraft uh, design that goes somewhere, in space, I need to think about different gravity conditions, uh, protecting humans and uh, psychology of uh, living in enclosed um, and isolated environment for quite some time with very limited number of people. Uh, any other topics, very many uh, other disciplines that are connected to that. 
And other fields, of course, we're connecting with aerospace engineering, we're working with them. We're not, uh, uh, we should be partners. And it's important to uh, respect everybody's uh, desire uh, to design in the best possible way. And understanding of that uh, can be different, but that's when uh, real creativity happens because then we really can enrich each other's experience and make probably better or find a better solution for design um, and future unknown conditions. Uh, again, uh, law and the end is law and art is part of it uh, because uh, that at some point uh, will become also um, one of the or part of the requirements. And as I'm talking especially about law, uh, all these uh, regulations and the ways how it could be designed if we're talking about surface of the moon, for example, different agencies, different countries, different companies building uh, and uh, developing uh, different uh, infrastructures there. So that will be important for architects at least to understand and listen to that. And art comes from different ways in, in different forms, not necessarily uh, and not even at the least maybe that's a picture or paintings on the wall, but more uh, integrated into living and working of the crew of people. And again, uh, insulated environment for a long period of time, uh, the way how we can um, make their life more enjoyable and more productive. So that's um, how we look at it. Again, uh, who are our clients? Architects is always about architecture, it's always about clients and working with clients, satisfying their needs and requirements on earth and the same in space. Uh, this is combination of uh, working with needs that agencies or uh, corporate um, companies uh, need from us and what they need and what they expect. And also those who will be using uh, those uh, environments, those uh, architectures. Understanding it and talking to them, uh, seeing uh, the environment, seeing the criticality of certain design decisions from their lenses is uh, very important. I saw in the comments as there's uh, talking about uh, your experience, uh, talking about to uh, Christopher H. Astronaut, and uh, about the habitability and how she was appreciative or uh, very concerned about architectures. Uh, that's exactly what we need to do and listen more. Again, uh, next missions, uh, next uh, long-term and sustainable presence uh, on the moon will require large number or at least uh, repeated visiting from researchers and scientists who will be establishing ISRU plans or um, technicians who will be overseeing those activities. So this different group of people that haven't been to dealt with when designing uh, in, for space. When uh, we're talking about space missions on the ISS, for example, it was quite different, the group of people who visited uh, the ISS so far. Um, that, uh, well, again, the general thing is milestones of space mission planning 
And I know that uh, planning, space mission planning, usually is taken care of way beyond uh, the level of uh, engineers and architects. It's a high level of agencies or companies and, and so far. Uh, but uh, we need to know, uh, we need to be part of these discussions and these conversations because you cannot design an element, uh, habitable space, habitable uh, volume, um, even more if we're talking about settlements and bases without understanding overall needs, goals and objectives at every stage of the development. So involvement of uh, architects, uh, involvement of engineers together with architects at this very uh, starting point of mission planning is uh, important. Uh, also, uh, of course, uh, thinking about and knowing uh, what are the launch capabilities, uh, what kind of propulsion uh, will be, systems will be needed um, to reach, to go somewhere to Mars, for example, uh, what kind of power systems uh, and so on. All these considerations are affecting and are different for different uh, missions. So missions, uh, can vary from uh, tourism to just servicing and maintaining a station of spacecraft in orbit. Uh, those have to be addressed in, from different perspective and uh, this affects also the way how habitable spaces will be designed, how we will arrange uh, the zoning inside, what kind of functions will be present. That's uh, everything is depending on what are the mission uh, goals and objectives, what we need to serve. Uh, again, uh, the ways how we validate our design decisions, our designs, here comes all this uh, discussion that we were talking about digital twins and using VR and mixed reality. Uh, for that purpose uh, on Earth, we need to start evaluating uh, our design decisions as soon as possible from operational perspective, especially. From operational pers perspective, also the level not, for example, one crew member experiencing the design and performing a task, but when uh, several crew members or as many as they're supposed to be on the mission interact with each other in the given environment. Uh, again, the challenges talked about it a lot, so I yeah, probably won't stay here very long uh, because uh, the uh, great launch mass and volume constraints, uh, it's again pretty obvious that we need to launch everything from Earth. Uh, we have restrictions of the, uh, the volume, uh, the, uh, the mass that we need to, uh, we can put our payload in. Uh, we need to design uh, to prevent uh, the crew being uh, harmed by all the hazards uh, presented in space and its vacuum uh, radiation, uh, then it's um, extreme temperatures. Again, microgravity and partial gravity, we still need to take care of uh, physical health of the crew. Uh, talking about planetary surface difficulties, uh, they still need to deal with gravity, microgravity, uh, and we don't know how that will affect the crew. We only can assume certain things, but still need to provide all the means for the crew to stay healthy. 
uh, how we protect uh, uh, the crew and what kind of human factors support we can offer. Uh, psychological, social, and cultural problems associated with isolation and confined environment as uh, also very much uh, drivers for design requirements as well. So all of these challenges actually then uh, become our design requirements in addition to um, requirements coming from engineering side of it, uh, engineering requirements. And of course, we need to uh, uh, protect the crew and make it safe for crew from all from all means. Uh, Gravity-related design considerations is more about again mitigation of physical health hazards. How we can do it? We need to provide visual cues uh, in microgravity or zero gravity conditions. Still, probably be helpful. Provide some uh, uh, facilitate the um, circulation uh, in partial gravity conditions. Uh, it may be better, but it may be worse. Something, it will be different from Earth for sure. And it will be different for the crew after a long duration uh, flight in uh, zero G conditions. Uh, where we store water and how we can distribute it, uh, how we distribute uh, all other needs, um, how we will run all the utilities inside the habitats. Uh, redundancy, uh, what we can afford, Don't we cannot afford redundancy in each module probably, have to be really, really frugal what we bring there. We also need to uh, maximize uh, safety, health, uh, critical aspects, and probably always find a good compromise what we can uh, what we can find bringing there to support the crew, but also helping them with uh, a larger volume. By the way, larger, not necessarily better. Uh, astronauts uh, very often say that how the space is organized is more important than how it's big. Well, we all know we, how big it is. Uh, we know um, right now on the ISS, it's still quite crowded space that they deal with. Uh, so that's uh, organizational um, approach, how we can optimize the space in the best possible way uh, is uh, important. On the surface, to, in addition to uh, other uh, problems, uh, need to think uh, about uh, uh, dust protection, mitigation. We need to think how we can utilize ISRU resources uh, the best possible way. Here comes, of course, 3D printing, uh, getting resources uh, from regolith, for example, getting water in situ, getting, uh, getting oxygen and metals in situ. Uh, we still need to protect uh, the crew uh, from radiation hazards, but again, transportation as um, also uh, will be needed with, if it's uh, pressurized rover, non-pressurized, uh, what kind of EVAs. We can support all of that affects our design uh, uh, considerations. So with all that said, uh, where is uh, uh, what our point, where, where is our site? How, what kind of uh, role space architecture can uh, play? Again, uh, in, um, our, uh, design, in our program, uh, usually that's the approach that uh, students um, are offered uh, to take is uh, look at this, uh, the finding the gap in this, uh, in the research, in the requirements and uh, in the approaches that uh, is the space agencies are 
um, uh, doing right now or uh, other commercial activities uh, proposed right now. So the space architecture design dri uh, driver to find this current capabilities gap. For example, looking at this uh, artificial gravity design, uh, 400 uh, tourists to go around the moon that uh, was designed at our center for Bigelow Aerospace many years ago. It's even scary to say how many, more than 20 years ago. Uh, it's this grand design idea. This is big rotating in, um, vehicle. Uh, two uh, bigs on two sides, there are uh, inflatable habitats that will support uh, 100 people. 75 tourists, 25 crew. Uh, how we will get there? There is obvious gap. And perhaps uh, if we're talking about artificial gravity, so maybe uh, we need first to think how we can test this uh, um, type of structures. We don't even know how systems will work. Uh, we don't know how fluid dynamics will be in a rotating. Well, we can guess, we can calculate it, but we need to test it first in zero-g conditions, not on Earth. Uh, also, how people will adapt to in rotating environment. So here is uh, one of the projects that um, uh, students, uh, one of the students did a couple years ago, is starting small and figuring all of that out. So what if we use our capabilities that we have right now and see what we can do with that? So here's, uh, he proposed that the pre-child uh, module this uh, Roscosmos module that would attach to progress and two dragon capsules attached to this on tethers. And then it will start rotating. It first gets powered from the ISS, then it detaches from the ISS and uh, rotation uh, begins. And then we can test the systems and then we can have, also can have a subject, well, people in uh, those uh, dragons and see how uh, people can adapt to in rotating environment, what they can do from operational point of view. Uh, also, I, an, another example on the lunar surface, before we have such a big uh, uh, infrastructure on the surface. So what we can do, maybe uh, we can start from that. And this project that uh, we did for Boeing a couple of years ago, uh, designing a very small habitat that uh, the, with, for crew of four for two weeks that the crew will be, the major task would be for the crew to offload uh, logistics um, cargo module, uh, cargo from a lander into the habitat module. So uh, we looked at different configurations, how we can do this stuff. Uh, what it will require. Before that, we looked at uh, deployable inflatable airlock options. Uh, again, minimizing it as much as possible and making it as light as possible. So inflatable uh, airlock with just one hatch. Uh, really, uh, Boeing was interested in this option. Uh, and um, that's what we suggested uh, to use. Here is this comparison between these three types of airlocks. It's for, this was designed for uh, zero gravity conditions. But on the surface, we suggested it can be used for cargo offloading and loading into habitat. So we have only one hatch, which makes it very, very light. 
uh, as light as possible. We also looked at different levels of uh, automation for unpressurized rover for cargo delivery or to uh, astronauts delivery. Uh, different levels of automation defines different levels of automation and capabilities of the habitat. So it's all have to be uh, evaluated. It's a lot of trade studies and that's what uh, space architecture is good about and uh, find the most uh, economical and optimized uh, way, weight of um, design. So here's uh, examples how interior can be reconfigured a uh, very, very tight environment, very limited to what we can offer for the crew. Exercising is just uh, barely just a, a rubber band that they will be stretching. Uh, then um, uh, hygiene is all deployable structures. When uh, this uh, habitat will have to be reconfigured, only two crews uh, can be inside reconfiguring it. Other two will have to stay step out in this um, uh, crude airlock outside, which is not the best solution. Okay, so what is uh, the uh, our goal? What we need to look into to design? What are these the big scale uh, requirements uh, and to satisfy the client and what the clients usually need? Uh, they want uh, to be, of course, their efforts profitable. If we're talking about agencies or especially private companies. Aesthetics is one of the functions. It has to be aesthetically, not only pleasant, pleasant but it's aesthetically uh, satisfying. Uh, still, it has to be very practical and uh, flexible. Flexibility of the design uh, allows easy uh, adaptation to different mission needs uh, or crew needs. It also uh, allows um, uh, adapting it, adapting it to different technological needs. So that's also important to uh, allow the habitat systems, allow these uh, ha uh, habitable spaces uh, to be adjustable to new capabilities, technological capabilities. So value-based design is somewhere in the middle between feasibility, space optimization, and the function, satisfaction of the function. So there's uh, to remind you what is uh, right now going on and uh, where our uh, graduates are working now. So it's uh, in Axiom, as uh, you know, working on this commercial, commercial orbital station. Uh, doing quite well, so we will be visiting them soon with this uh, our class. Uh, and other three is Blue Origins uh, and Nanorax and Northrop Grumman all uh, proposed their stations and uh, all of this on, uh, on the development right now. So that's uh, super exciting and uh, super nice. So thank you. And again, so the graduate program, if somebody doesn't know what uh, we offer at the University of Houston and the College of Engineering is uh, two uh, types of uh, Master of Science uh, programs and uh, degrees. So it's one in the Master of Science in Space Architecture and another is dual degree with aerospace engineering and space architecture. So thank you very much. If you have questions, I can ask answer some questions. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Do we have some questions from the audience? Questions? Yes. Yes, we do. Hello, uh, my name is Claire. I was wondering, so you had a slide on stakeholders who are interested in the space architecture. Who do you think besides governments like NASA and ESA would be funding the opening market for that kind of space architecture space? Well, those uh, um, uh, companies that I showed this in the end, so four uh, uh, commercial stations are now at work. So Axiom is a little bit ahead. So they pursue uh, two types of commercial activities, uh, tourism, of course, and research. Uh, research and potentially production. A lot of the research is related to medical and pharmaceutical activities and companies. So I know that many, many years ago, um, uh, the company that uh, Larry Bell and Gitrotti uh, organized the space industry. So they actually uh, thought that uh, um, pharmaceutical companies would be interested and they tried to start business based on that. They didn't get uh, much of interest, but that was uh, 30 years ago. So it's quite different now, uh, more and more medical um, and uh, medical activities happening there. And uh, um, the ISS uh, is very busy with uh, research really related to healthcare and drug delivery and smart drug delivery. And that can be done in zero G only, that kind of activity development. So that's probably, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely, thank you. Thank you very much. We have another question from Amel. He says that uh, he has a bachelor's in architecture. Can can I get into the dual degree program? Well, that will require to satisfy uh, prerequisites. And those prerequisites are coming from um, some classes in mechanical engineering, uh, which is, uh, I have few students who actually took that uh, path and they fulfilled, uh, so it just took them longer, but they took these undergraduate classes. And one is about to graduate in uh, two weeks, I guess, the end of the semester. So um, it will be longer, but yes, but you have to satisfy those requirements. So usually I suggest if somebody in the very beginning their uh, educational path asks uh, what to do and what takes, so I suggest to have a minor in engineering and uh, take or take those at least courses that can be qualified uh, as prerequisites. Solid dynamics, uh, fluid dynamics, usual stuff. Nothing really special. <laughs> Perfect, thank you. And good, good luck to Amel. Yes, um, do, we have, <laughs> do we have more questions or do we proceed? Uh, Alba, I, I mean, uh, Olga, you know, I, I commend you on the program and uh, and the way you uh, tenaciously proceed with with the agenda because um, I know from our discussions uh, that it is not easy uh, to to survive and exist